have I got a story for you. I've never understood it. Can't wrap my mind around it. Why do people want to challenge their ability to survive uncomfortable situations? Like, why does almost dying make some people feel alive? Fucking ultra marathons, Spaniard farm purchasing, being naked and afraid, fire dancing while blazed? Well, she was actually lit. Well, no, 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 I'm sorry. Not literally lit, more drunk or buzzed, but it didn't rhyme, so I felt it didn't fit. But first, a word from today's sponsor, AndrePsyche.com. Yes, AndrePsyche.com is the cute, quaint, corner store boutique with all sorts of neat and original merch you had no idea existed because Google is just fucking biased towards the little man. Well, when you get to AndrePsyche.com, I'm sure you are wondering, what will you see? What's available? (gasps) Literature, clothing, paintings, prints, accessories, music, poetry, podcasts. (gasps) May I emphasize, (gasps) with an appropriately timed gasp, original music. Or any custom gift that your soul could desire because Andre is a freelance creator extraordinaire. So go to AndrePsyche.com and see what speaks to you because each and every item has a story behind it. Nothing is made. Everything is created on AndrePsyche.com. We are also brought to you by the Getting to Know You pod. Please do us and me a favor, 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 listener. We need and appreciate your support. If you could just take a moment right now and push the subscribe button, whether you are listening on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever. And if you're feeling exceptionally generous, rate and review the Getting to Know You pod, especially if you are on Apple or listening to it on Apple. How else can you support this fine podcast with an intense amount of sober production? Thanks for thinking of that. You can go to patreon.com and search getting to know you pod. It's all one word and become a subscriber. You can also friend and follow the pod on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's getting the number two. No, the letter U pod again, all one word. Finally, we are looking for sponsors and advertisers. If you or someone you know has a business or brand and would like to expand your market reach, consider partnering with the Getting to Know You pod. Why? Because we get to know people from all around the world. The podcast is downloaded in over 45 countries at this point. Shout out France and Canada, still keeping it real. And the majority of states in America, 42 if my counting is correct. So again, if you or someone you know are looking to get more traffic to your site, more followers on your social, more purchases of your product, more clicks on your whatever, just message us. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And doggone it. My 
on today's show. We are getting to know Cassandra. Now, it just, it's so forced. I'm sorry, Cassandra. It's very good. <laughs> so, little just background. It's funny to me because you go by Cassie sometimes, but you're shifting into this Cassandra thing because in Europe, everyone is like saying your name so beautifully. And I think that's awesome. And you might actually be the most syllabolic name that's been on the podcast yet to date. So, congratulations on that. Thanks. Yeah, it's a long one. It's hard to embroider on things. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think about that, right? You have to get like the weird arch or such a tiny little font. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, man, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for giving your time. And you're, um, we're talking to each other. I'm in Delaware and you're in Bulgaria? That's right. Yes, I'm in Sofia, Bulgaria. Sofia, Bulgaria, man. And as another just backstory, as if I have not given enough for the first 45 seconds or whatever, I messaged you, I think it was late May. And then out of nowhere, so long ago, out of nowhere, (laughs) you were like, hey, didn't mean to flake. COVID got me deported back to the States, but then I'm back in Europe. And if you want to, I'd still love to. And I was like, oh my God, that sounds like a lifetime of experience in just six months. Oh boy, six it weeks. was. <laughs> yeah. I'm really thankful to be home and back like in my house because basically we were quarantining in random motels and moving every day because we got sent back to the state, but we don't have a house there anymore. So, you know, it was a lot of moving around, staying with some friends and family. And we really didn't know how long we'd even be there until last week we got an email from our lawyer that said you have to get special permission to come back to Bulgaria if you can't get here by Wednesday and that was I think on Thursday so two weeks ago Thursday um then you lose your visa permanently so (laughs) we had to book a flight for like three days later and go take a bunch of COVID tests and got back finally but it was really unexpected so Bulgaria is your like your residence, you live there, you have a home there? I do. Yeah. So I spend about six months out of the year here. And the other six months I spend traveling for races. Um, also we have a farm in Spain, uh, where we're learning to farm like olives and almonds and figs. We don't know anything about farming. Um, but we got (laughs) this like ancient farm there, uh, that's a producing olive farm and it has like this 300 year old ruin house on it. And we're trying to restore that as well. So it's kind of like a project, but we also, you know, we try and spend two to four months a year out there too. So oh my god, yeah, between travel and farming and then living here, we're kind of all over the place. Yeah. So then you're a full, full out European. I did not know that. Yeah, I we pretty much only come back to the States to visit for like Christmas, you know, and some other times of the year. If we end up getting to come back in the summer for a race or something, we'll do that. But it's maybe once or twice a year we visit. And that's so then that's so weird to me that you got kicked out with COVID if you're it's not like you were backpacking for the first time, you know, on like whatever the rails. Like it seems like no, you have we didn't history. even yeah, we didn't even get to come home to get our things oh my when God. we got kicked out. So we had to leave without our stuff as well. We had been in Spain at that farm. And um, and because COVID started happening, we tried to go back to Bulgaria where we have a uh, long-stay visa that we're working towards permanent residency. 
And yeah, with that, we were coming back in. We flew over and we had some permissions from the um, Ministry of Interior who does like uh, visas and things notarized and everything saying, you know, we should be fine to get in. And they said, yeah, that's too bad. (laughs) And put us in uh, like the airport jail for two days until we could get a flight back to the States. You sound so positive. Were you at the time? Like, like your, your, your whole voice and demeanor. It's like, you just have this optimistic perkiness to the, your tone. And I'm wondering, well, it was so shocking. It's something you can't even process. It's like, you just have to kind of write it off as like, that was one of those what the hell experiences. Right. Um, because yeah, it, it's almost like more than you can even think of. Um, because we were, we were put in this little cell, um, where they put people who were being deported for like, for cause, you know, if you murdered somebody or something and they have cameras on you 24 hours, they had the lights on 24 hours, but it was me, my partner and our dog all in this cell and they don't wash the bedding or anything. It was crazy. Yeah. Even the bedroom or no, I'm sorry. Even the bathroom had like big windows in it. So we couldn't even like bathe or really change without like being watched. It was weird. It was a weird, crazy experience. I mean, so many people have it so much worse. It's right. the truth, you know? Yeah. Um, but like, it was a weird thing to do. And I kind of appreciate it for that at this point. Like at the time, it was pretty traumatizing because we didn't know how long we were going to be in there. But it ended up being two days and then we flew back to the States and it was all fine, you know? And in the two days, they're just basically treading water figuring out how you're gonna get back are you talking to a lawyer like what's going on those two days yeah so we have a a lawyer in bulgaria that's our um helping us you know go through the paperwork and the process of getting our visas so he was we were in conversation with him we called the embassy they wanted to send us back to spain um because that's where we'd actually come from and spain was like yeah right we're not taking you you're not a spanish citizen so they're like you can come back here and no, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry. There's, there's no video, and maybe I should risk the video sometimes, because I interject in the middle, but like um, the weird thing when you say that in Spain's like, sorry, if you own a farm there, like that was something that was happening in Delaware, people were trying to get here from like New York City, and Delawareans were like, you can't come stay in New York. It's like, well, they own property. Don't they kind of have a right to get to their property? They do pay taxes. So it's funny to me that you would say, yeah, we have a farm in Spain and Spain's like, you're not Spanish citizens. Yeah, man, but I own some it's property. It's exactly true. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like that seems so screwed up. It's like, but if I, if you allowed me to buy property, aren't I like part of you now? Don't, don't, don't I count as something? Yeah. Well, apparently during global pandemic, right? we count as Americans who are, have a higher rate of like infection. So they're like, you're out of here. We have nothing to do with you. And we're like, we haven't even been to America in a year. What are you talking about? We just came from Spain yesterday. They're like, that's too bad. Oh my God. So yeah, it was like a really interesting thing. Um, And we learned a lot about like the sort of bureaucratic process of it all and what embassies can and cannot help you with. And we're fortunate enough that like we weren't on the streets in the States, you know, we had people we could stay with. We were able to get hotels and stuff, but like, six months of hotels is not cheap you know i mean like i think we spent four months in the states and two months in spain before so we hadn't been home in six months to bulgaria um but and we thought maybe we would be there till next year 
So we were shocked that we're home now, you know? Really? Why? Yeah. It, it, there, there just wasn't any real like um, information on when they're going to open Europe back up to American citizens. Man, that is that is so trippy for me. And it it is amazing when you talk about that pandemic thing because I guess I shouldn't be sure, but I'm pretty sure you were feeling like a Bulgarian. Like 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 you belong, right? Like, you know, you know your little stores, you you have your routes. And then to have that taken away just almost it seems anti American, even if it's happening in Bulgaria. Am I thinking about this right? But you just don't think like I could have my life taken away when I've established a life here over nothing that I've done. You're absolutely right. You know, like it's not yeah, like, like you we didn't committed do a crime. anything wrong. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We're like, we're trying to do what we were told, which is come back. And they were like, yeah, well, by back, we really mean America. That's where your passport's for. So bye. <laughs> Man. Yeah. yeah right? It was uh, something. It. Um. I'd watched a little bit. Um, is it Bridesmaid's Tale on Amazon? You probably don't watch any TV because you'd live an amazing life. Um, you'd probably don't. Oh, that's anything. nice of you. I'm. I, I just am not really a TV person. I'm a little too like hyper. I can to sit for it. I can <laughs> tell by um the fact that you're trying to renovate a 300 year old <laughs> Spanish house and learn how yeah. to make all of it. But one of the the premise and it was so stark and it's been done a lot in stories is like. The government's changing. You've been told you have the proper paperwork in order to flee. And in her case, she was trying, I believe, to get to Canada because there was like um, a female, a persecution of women who could give birth to children. Um, society had gone through this thing where children are no longer being born. So women need to be birthers. And if you have the ability to give birth, basically you turn into like a concubine to produce children. It, it's a, like an eerie thing. But there's a scene when she's at the um, airport and her paperwork gets denied out of nowhere. And she's like, no, 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 it's all official. It's all official. And they're like, sorry. And like her husband has to leave with the kid and she has to get help and she gets held behind. And it's, it, it's, it's very uncomforting. It, it's very like eerie. You just picture, you're like, no, nah, that's too weird to happen. And when you were telling me your story, I'm like, God, I could not imagine being like, no, 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 it's notarized. It's official. And then be like, nope, here's a jail cell. Yeah, we were pretty shaken by it. And that actually happened again coming back. Um, but we just managed to have already had the like right contacts in place so that once we got held the second time, you know, our lawyer and our friends here were able to contact the right people to say, no, no, this is definitely approved, you know, push them through. And then they did let us go. But it still had to be taken up the chain of command because – that's that's exactly the case like you can have all the paperwork in order we had probably like 30 sheets of paper of saying different things we had our you know negative covid tests we had our like notarized documents from the embassy in chicago even that we went and got and a bunch of different things that we needed to have and even still they said no you have to wait like we're not sure if these will work you may have to go back yeah oh i didn't it's, even... it's crazy that like you can follow all the rules and still maybe not get in yeah dude it really speaks a lot to this false sense of security um that people put in the government or even like trust you're like no no, no they, they serve me or no i'm doing it right i'm following the rules and it's like should i have or should i have like found some sort of underground way like um, a coyotes for like hispanics crossing the border you know you find you get smuggled across because 
it's more reliable than actually following the rules and being on the grid. You know, you're like, right. I mean, no kidding. I'm like, I'm a hundred mile runner, you know, like, don't think I can't hike across these mountains here, but I wouldn't, not to say that like, I need to be, you know, going to jail for that or anything, but like, yeah, right. man, we tried to do it right. And like, that's what sucks is, yeah, with the you patients. know, we weren't trying to cheat the system. Right. Dude, I, I'm wondering who takes the dog when you're in jail for two days, who takes the dog for a walk? Do the, do the prison guards, do they allow you to walk around or are you like legit in that cell for, for like almost 48 hours? My poor dog did not poop for two days. Um, <laughs> and actually that and the flight all the way back to America beyond that, because he's a champ. He's so good. Um, and they would let me take him into like a small courtyard. If I had to like, you know, you wave to the camera, someone comes and unlocks it. And so, like, uh, maybe twice a day, they'd let me take him to a courtyard where he could pee. But, um, yeah, he's pretty good about only going to the bathroom in the grass. And so if there's not a grass area for him to go, he just waits. And I got to know, like, so what kind of dog name? Yeah, so this is um, Smokey. He's a Pomeranian Chihuahua mix. He weighs six pounds. And he's been to, like, 12 different countries. He goes all over with me. So, He's made the the trip back and forth from the States to Europe like six times. So he's a good flyer and he's fine with, you know, a 12, 14 hour flight. But yeah, having him stuck in a jail cell for two days, he was the one freaking out the least. He was definitely the most chill about it. That's hilarious. Do you have Smokey registered as like a therapy dog so you can sneak him into places you're not supposed to? He's an emotional support dog, emotional um, which support doesn't dog. make a difference in Europe, but it does in uh, in the States. The States. Um, yeah, so he basically gets to fly in my lap and not have to be like in a cage, yeah. which is important for like the nine to 12 hour flights. Right. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's it's reasonable. I, I had it with my doctor. I had other things for my doctor before. You know, I had him registered. I still had him as my dog before he was that, but he ma- it makes a lot of sense to have him that way. And and of course, he's very comforting. Yeah, <laughs> to fly right. With, you know, and just in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And can he run with you? Like, if you go out no, on. He's, yeah, he's not much of a runner. He <laughs> he can do about a mile, maybe two. He loves a, a small hike, but. He's just a little guy and he's had right. like two broken legs in his life. Oh. He's not had the best luck. So after a little while he gets to limping and then yeah. I just carry him. But he, we have a backpack that will carry him in if we go on long hikes and sometimes for runs. That's hilarious. It It's amazing to me that these, um, the descendants of wolves, right, are carried by humans <laughs> and pampered as emotional support. When you like just go with the genealogy, you're like, wait, aren't you a carnivore? Like if I was alone in the woods, you would have a pack of your friends trying to eat me if you were hungry enough. And instead, oh, it's so true. we get along perfectly, right? We're buddies. We snuggle. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's, it's oh, awesome yeah. to me. He's in here right now. He's like laying on a blanket sleeping behind me. Um, Smokey never has any problems. <laughs> How'd you come up with the name Smokey? Uh, at the time when I got him, I had a second dog called Bandit. And so uh, he was the brother of Bandit. So then I had Smokey and the Bandit. Gotcha. Huh. I like, dude, I, I, I love it. I love little, <laughs> I love little dogs like that, that have personality and that 
enhanced situations and they're not like the yappers that deter that annoy do you know what i'm yes. saying like it's nice when i you... absolutely do he's not a barker he's not allowed to be a barker he can't he can't fly on planes if he's going to bark but there was a dog on our flight back here that was barking like almost the whole time and Smokey would like look up and i'd know he'd want to bark back and i'm like you're better than this don't you do that <laughs> don't sink to his level Smokey. Yeah, <laughs> rise I'm above. Like, Smokey, you're better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, dude, I, I, I'm fine with crying babies because you know they're babies. You got it. But mm-hmm. the, the barking dog that when people come on and you know it's an emotional support or it's a therapeutic thing, if that's the case, man, then your dog's got to be chill. It can't be enhancing situations yeah. emotionally, right? Like you would just be like, you, you went online and got a certificate. To get, to yeah, at that. that point, it's like that's that's actually not helping anyone. And I, as someone who flies with my dog all the time, get super mad at people whose dogs bark on the plane because I'm like, I know you can do better. Like, you don't have to let your dog bark like that. Mine's not barking. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and you're making it harder for everyone to travel with dogs. Yeah, well, and also like it it adds to that social stigma's the wrong word. But there is like this thing where the emotional support animals, like I remember there was a year ago, someone tried to get like a peacock on as an emotional support. And you're like, what are we doing? What, what, what are we doing? Right? Yeah, so yeah. It, it seems like it it's needed, right? Like it's an actual thing. But then when it starts getting overly abused or dramatic in some sense, then you're like, you're not helping. You're not helping the cause of acceptance. Right. And the truth of it is if they would let me have him on my lap and pay – the pet fee, but still keep him out of the carrier. I'd be happy to do that. In Europe, we always pay the pet fee because they're like, emotional support is not an issue that we're concerned with. I'm like, I respect that, you know, fine. Um, but it's, it's just really hard that like, there are special privileges that come along with it. Like being able to not have your dog stuck in a tiny box. He can't hardly even move in for nine or 12 hours, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I think it's definitely a gray area, you know? Um, and, like, I can say I, you know, they, I take, like, I usually take Xanax when I fly because I'm a nervous flyer anyways. But, like, it helps to have the dog. I don't know. Yeah. I no. think that, like, the emotional support dog thing, though, is, like, more for the benefit of the dog than the person probably. <laughs> well, it's – and I'm assuming you don't have – do you have children? I shouldn't assume. That's bad of me. No, I don't have children. Okay. Yeah. So then you're, yeah. you're not the weird, but you're, you almost, you're right on that borderline of those people who are like, dogs are my kids kind of a thing, which you can no, easily. No, my dog is definitely my child. Exactly. Like the fake version of my child. <laughs> exactly. I'll, I'll take it. I'm a hundred percent those people. He has a snowsuit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that was, um. An episode, or it was like a thing in the office. And again, because uh, I watch way too much TV and I'm completely unproductive with my life. Um, are you familiar oh, with The Office? I know what it is. Okay. I'm super un American for having not seen it. My brother was even just getting on to me the other day for having never watched The Office. No, it's they just, it's a lot like Seinfeld where they just point things out. But there was this one thing where it's like Angela, who's a cat person, just wants to talk about her cat in conversations with other people who were talking about their babies and it's like, you know, <laughs> your animal is not a child, you know, but it, it actually, for a lot of people, like it becomes that. So it makes sense that you don't want to shove your kid in a crate and make, have it be alone for nine to 12 hours and go through this traumatic experience. You're like, we don't know what 
flying does to animals psychologically, mentally, right? Like it, you, you can't figure out the toll. It's got to be weird for them to just be up in the air. Like when their ears pop, do their ears pop? They can't chew gum, right? How do, right, how do yeah. they deal with that discomfort? That's completely unnatural to them. You know? So, I mean, I, I totally agree. Yeah. I and I had a friend when I lived in Hawaii, who's, um, her dog actually, she, went through all the like rigorous steps to have it like quarantine and stuff. It's really difficult to get animals into Hawaii because they're rabies free. Um, so after doing all of that, she had her dog flown over and it had to fly in the belly because it was flying separately from her. She was already there. And like the poor dog like passed away like a couple days later. No like way. they think it was from so much stress, you know, it wasn't anything the airline did wrong, but it's right? just, it's a tough experience. And like for us, you know, we fly with him like, four or five times a year sometimes. So it's like, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do that to any animal really, but especially not the one that's essentially my child. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, they do, they become part of your life, man. It's, it's a part of the family and it's, I don't know, like it just, it's funny that it is such a thing. And it makes me wonder, like, was there some lobbyist somewhere? Did someone get bitten at some point? Did the airlines just see it as a way to make additional money were they losing money because animals were like peeing on seats and they were like you know what we need to put an end to it no like i've never do you know actually how it why it is such a big deal to have an animal on a plane or on a flight with you i don't know in europe they don't make that big of a deal out of it because the flights are shorter Hmm. you know you're just not going as far here um but like for an overseas flight they put you through a lot of like you know questioning and stuff i always have to certify that like I have a plan for him to use the bathroom on the plane, which he's literally never done. But just in case, you know, we have the puppy pads and they tell you, make you like lay out in like paperwork and sign it on what your plan is, how you deal with it so that it can be done (laughs) safely. And it makes sense. But the thing is, I think it's because a lot of times people just bring a dog on a plane that's maybe never even been on a road trip and definitely doesn't have like, the stability to handle that. And that's not nice to the people around you. And it's not nice to your animals. So yeah, so I can understand that, you know, to like wanting just to say like, Hey, this dog has at least had some kind of training so that they can handle this and it won't be horrible for everybody. Yeah. That's a good point. Could you imagine if like the only time you're in the longest road trip your animal's been on is the ride to the airport. And then all of a sudden you're going to jump on a plane with it. God. Horrible <laughs> idea. I'm sure, yeah, right? I'm sure. I'm sure that's yeah. happened. And of course, you just casually throw in, I've lived in Hawaii as well. Like, God, you know, all I can bring up are TV show references and you're naming like the most beautiful places in the world that you've experienced. I, I got to change. Oh, that's you've inspired me. <laughs> you've, you've inspired me, Cassie. I'm, I'm going to change my oh, life. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, I, I had no idea that I, we would talk that long about therapy dogs based on being in jail basically for two days. Did you consider getting yeah. any tattoos? While you were in jail to remember it. Oh, you know, like I should have really looked into that, but there weren't very many other people in there. And I, we did, we did like drink with this guy from Turkey. We had like, um, the, the guards would let us go. So they don't provide you food in airport jail, but they will like escort you to the little like snack shop in the airport. So (laughs) we like snuck a little like bottle of booze and, uh, and had shots with this, like, uh, some other random guy that was stuck in there. He was from Turkey and ended up being really lovely. And we were like making jokes about our like jail hooch, which was not, it was definitely purchased, but still it was funny. Yeah, dude, that's again, like it's, 
the contrast of, sorry, we need to detain you, but hey, let's walk around, let's get people, because this COVID pandemic thing, right? But we're not going to yeah. actually, actually isolate you. We're just going to kind of go through these sense, these senseless steps <laughs> that won't help to not spread COVID. <laughs> oh like, yeah. It's so ironic. Everyone locked in that jail was in like the same hallway and we all had to share a bathroom. So we were in there with like six or seven other people. Um, it was definitely, they weren't worried about us getting COVID. They were worried about us getting into the country and spreading it. You yeah. Know? Right. I know it's, God, it, that's, that's awesome. And I love that you can laugh about it. Shots. What was the um? What was the drink? What were you taking shots of? Oh goodness, I don't even remember. I'm not much of like a. Oh, that sounds like really bad. Okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm not much of a drinker, and I wasn't the one who purchased it. So, um, something brown, probably rum or something. <laughs> and was there any fear of like getting it confiscated, or I don't know, being put in like isolation? The, the hole for we were already booze. getting kicked out of the country you know so you were like, like what are you what gonna else? do with that awesome. you rebels that's awesome oh they I, I don't think the guards would have minded they probably would have like shared some with us you know okay. it, i don't think it would have been that bad gotcha man that's um I'm, I'm my mind's spinning in a million different directions with these life experiences um and can honestly when you messaged me again I had to click on your profile to remember I went through this whole like, hey, get someone from Naked and Afraid on my pod because yeah. my daughter went through like a phase of that. It's, again, the a freaking olive almond farm in Spain, ultra marathon running, Bulgaria, Naked and Afraid. So you swim with sharks too? a lot too? of weird hobbies. <laughs> it, I, no, dude, that, it's amazing. Like it's... I think it does honestly speak a lot to how much time is wasted on Netflix and what you can accomplish in life, man. Um, what's, I don't know. I actually, I want to talk about how you wound up in Bulgaria. Like why that? Is that for running or is that just you hate America? Trump got elected and you were like, fuck it, man, I'm out. Um, no, we're <laughs> coincidentally, it did coincide with a change of regime, but, um, we, came here because my, my partner sold his business. Um, so I have like a, a long-term partner. We're not married, but he's like, I would say more than a boyfriend. We've been together like five years. We live together, travel, do all this running stuff together. So, um, we consider it pretty permanent. Um, and he got, um, so he retired or sold his company. He used to own like an ad agency in the States and he sold that and decided to like, go on this whirlwind trip around the world um, and just like see everything you've missed out on by starting this company really young and spending all this time running that. And so um, I joined him on that trip. That was kind of when we first started dating and then we traveled full time for two years and then he kind of got bored of not having a job. So he teamed up with one of the previous vendors that he'd worked with and they happened to be from Bulgaria and so he came here to basically take on part of that company and he, um, you know, he lives here part time, but that's kind of the agreement is he doesn't have to be here all the time. So we're here mostly okay. for his job, um, that he, he like owns and runs this company here. It's like tech stuff. They make websites and things. Okay. Yeah. I, that's, that's something that, um, a lot of people I think are discovering that the office space the show up at nine o'clock and clock in kind of mentality, especially with a company like tech that's 
technology based. Are we, do we need that? Do I even need you really in, in the hallway, in the building, in the city, in the, in the Hamlet, in the whatever, right? Like you can, in the country. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's one of the cooler, I hope cooler things that can come from COVID is more like the, in the freedom that can come from job opportunities, the economic growth of maybe people will be able to apply to all these different companies and work where they live, not where the job is. That's neat. That's neat. That, that Sean, happened. I totally agree with you on that. Definitely. God. I think you're absolutely right. Thank you. I might actually just make that the clip for the uh, entire episode right there. We're good. We'll, <laughs> call you it, go. we'll call it a day. That's all I needed to hear. That was it. Um, and what That's you... my soundbite. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you think of Bulgaria? It's not, I mean, if you guys are traveling... Were you excited for Bulgaria? Do you know anything about Bulgaria? The food you were thinking, can't wait? Like, <laughs> So, yeah, the first time I came here uh, was, you know, right out. It was, we came here to visit partway through our travels, uh, like our two years of uh, nomad traveling. And uh, we, we came here just as part of like setting up the company with the intention to come back and live here later on once it got rolling more and he needed okay. to be here. You know, more actively. Um, so the first time I came here, I could not point it out on a map. Right. <laughs> I think most Americans probably couldn't. Uh, it's one of those like uh, Eastern Europe bloc countries used to be um, communist and that kind of shows in some of the architecture and stuff. But the people here are, you know, very liberated now. And they even have like some statues in the park of uh, like American presidents who they credit with ending communism here so that's pretty cool so we were welcomed as americans um what else let's see so uh we live on a mountain oh sorry go ahead no no i'm just like thinking like ending communism that's i hadn't thought about those eastern blocks they've actually only been sovereign nations i mean is it even 40 years at this point Oh, yeah. There are people here, like a lot of the people that my partner works with actually um, lived through that time. And they told us you could only get bananas on Christmas and things like that. And like if you wanted a car, you get whatever car they give you. You can't just go buy a car. Um, It's crazy. The things that I've heard, you know, that people went through and, and kind of what people went without. So you do see there's quite a bit of opulence here. People now are really like, um exercising their ability to buy what they want and show that off. So what I love about Bulgaria is that the people here are super fancy and like really (laughs) to use like a a kind of modern term extra, Um, but not in a mean way. They're like deserved. But you'll see. Yeah. So people are really like, you know, getting out there and exercising that. I've never seen so many like Porsches and like, Ferraris, like nice cars and stuff, just like parked on the street, like it's nothing, you know? Um, and yeah, I don't know, like the taxes here are really low. So people end up just like being able to spend their money. And because they used to not be able to do that as they wanted, people are like getting serious about it. You know, you'll see someone like a lady in the grocery store in heels on like an evening gown at like 3 PM. Wow. You're like, that's a little weird, but also, I mean, I respect her right to like, dress up. Yeah. Do your thing. Man, that's, uh, that's amazing to me that you can come out of communism and have a flourishing economy. Right. Yeah. I think that, um, I think a lot of that is probably the low tax rate that's allowed like people to, you know, thrive after that, because 
I mean, the roads are fine. You don't, you know, you don't get a lot with what you pay, but you pay so little that you're, you're not even ready to complain. You know, I think that they have, um, like social health care, but we, uh, either they also have private options. So if we need to go to the doctor, we can choose to go to a private doctor and they're still very inexpensive. That's actually really great. I mean, the prices here are very low for things. Um, We don't have the same access to stuff as you do in the States. You know, like Amazon won't deliver things. If we order something, it just doesn't come. Uh, We didn't even have a mailbox until like a month ago when our, like one of our building mates bought it. But yeah, so, so like, the mail system is totally screwed, uh, but, like, other things are really so's, nice. So is ours. I don't know if you've heard. I've been blown away, not to get, again, too political, but, like, the whole mail-in thing that's going on over here, are you, have you seen it? Oh, I've heard. I've, I've heard small amounts about it. It's been as we were traveling when that's really kind of broken, so... Um, I, I don't know all the details, but, it's, but I have heard it's like, it's pretty bad. Dude, it's, it's, it's fucking nuts to me. Like how can during an election, just basic mailing, how can the person in charge say, take away sorting machines and put them outside? It was exposed. Actually, our Senator who's running in Delaware for office went to a postal service. He got a, basically like a whistleblower, sent him a letter being like, dude, you need to come check this out. They're literally taking apart sorting machines in the middle of the night and putting them outside so they get rained on. And oh then he goes and he's taking a picture by it. And me personally, I'm like, how are we not more outraged at the fact that we're going to have this election with the kind of president we have currently? And clearly the postmaster general has been influenced to screw with our infrastructure, like that machine, I don't know how much it costs, but I do know tax dollars went to it and you're taking it apart. And they're going to pay to buy another one. Right. You know, after the election, probably. Right. Yeah. No doubt. Right. That is produced by the guy who wins the election or one of his friends or something, you know, and you're like, so anyway, all that to say, and it's when you bring up Amazon, I'm like, I think the emphasis on consumption versus the life experience is something that. I've starting to realize just talking to people who are from all over the world, like it's just unneeded, man. Like the Amazon, the porch pirate. Now let me buy a camera and let me kit track and chart and all this like anxiety just to make sure a package gets to my door. It's like, why? Why porch am I going through that? Porch pirate is a great term. Wow. Right? Wait, have <laughs> I you... have not heard that one, but it's so good. Are you serious? That That's like a yeah. thing. Oh, dude, that's a huge thing. Oh my goodness. I like that. That's so funny. And like. People correct. <laughs> yeah, right. But dude, like that's a like if you live in a more urban area, man, people walk around snatching packages and you bring up this whole security industry and insurance and fraud, and now you're dealing with customer service and credit card, and you're like, it's a 14-step process, all because you wanted to get a late night drunk purchase of whatever knives, right? Or some shoes <laughs> yeah. or some like n- gaming system, and you're like, why, man? Why am I doing this when I should be investing in a 300-year-old rundown home in Spain and just living my life sipping, yeah. sipping wine, like making my... making my own olive oil, you know? There you go. Oh, God, that was a Yeah, tangent. and I guess that's the thing, too, is, um, you know, we've been fortunate to, like, be able to, you know, put our money and, like, our resources towards things like that. But the other thing is we don't spend a lot on other things like I have a my car is from 2000 you know it's like an old beetle it's, it runs right. most of the time and that's what I need you know like yeah I don't know you I think you can pick and choose you know so you can buy into the consumerism or you don't have to and that's something that's really been 
um, you know, that I've seen in Europe, not necessarily as much in Bulgaria, like I was saying, there's a lot of like material emphasis here. But, um, you know, when we spent time in Spain and stuff, people, you know, put a lot of emphasis on the quality over quantity, and they just don't really need to have that many things. And I've, I've come to realize that, like, I feel like I, you know, especially my American self wants to fill this void by buying more stuff. But the thing is, I already like the things I have. Yeah. Um, and I have to realize that that's like a false impulse and, and to kind of, you know, fight that. Can I? <laughs> and having been back in America was tough for that one. But and, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, no, don't we have your partner to blame since he was in advertising? Isn't he the, isn't <laughs> yeah, he the devil? Um, <laughs> Right. Well, he just made websites. So I guess by ad agency, he's, he's more of a tech agency. He, he made websites. I don't think he made like the designs for him, but yeah. well, close enough. Yeah. Let's blame him for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, His name is Matt, by the way. Matt. Damn it, Matt. Mm-hmm. You're making us overpurchase. But there is yeah. something like to the science of the marketing that drives consumerism, right? And it's it, it was a thing for ad agencies to be like looked upon as ruining culture because you're emphasizing yeah. things, you're glorifying things. And you actually did get that feeling come back to you in the States. You had to like fight some of those impulses. Absolutely. Especially because we came there, like I said, without being able to take our things from home. So we got there and we had, you know, like a couple sets of clothes that we'd worn on the farm. We had like one small bag between the two of us and suddenly we might be there for a year, you know? Um, so we really didn't have any of our things. Uh, we had like the important stuff, our computers stuff were working and things like that. But, um, as far as just like your basic consumables, you know, clothes, shoes, stuff like that, we had almost nothing. And so, you know, we did have to go out and buy a few things to like get us through, you know, like we went there, didn't have a jacket. <laughs> like, it was, right. um, I don't know, late March. So we were like, you know, trying to, you know, make sure we were at least comfortable. But we also wanted to like be really conscious that we're not just double buying things that we already have and like yeah. and buying a version that we don't even like as much as the one at home. Yeah. So it was a weird balance to try and find. I mean, we lived so for two months out of our stay there, we stayed in Matt's apartment that he was selling. Um and oh. it just so happened that he had a renter that moved out and then he chose to sell the place. Um, but it was an empty place during that time. So we actually stayed in this empty apartment on an air mattress nice. and like had a couple folding chairs and a folding table. And that was that. Um, straight and that's squatters. how we spent part of our time. Dude, that's awesome. What's that? I said straight squatters. No wonder the jail was so nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're like, our standards are so low. <laughs> You should see the place in Spain. Like, oh man, we stayed there the second night we um, like went to work on it because there was a really bad storm and we had no place to stay that was safe except in the actual ruin because our tent got destroyed. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're we're perfectly fine with just. I mean, well, you've seen my naked and afraid episode. I've got, <laughs> I, I can manage. <laughs> The this going to Spain and purchasing a farm, the reason for that is just like it came up because I've seen a bunch of ads and I've read news stories about people going to Italy and like these towns trying to repopulate and you can buy a fixer upper for like a dollar as long as you spend so much money. But there's also then like incentives where you get money back. Is it one of those things or it was just like you were scrolling on the internet and you're like, you know what? 
this is a good deal. So we saw those things and that's probably originally what we were inspired by, to be honest, you know, um, and we've, we've spent time in Spain before we spent like a month in Barcelona a couple years ago and some time in Madrid and Sevilla. So we're really like familiar with Spain. We sort of speak terrible Spanish. Um, <laughs> so we like that place, you know, love the people there. They're so warm. Um, so we did see things, you know, online, like, uh, how to get really, you know, there's really cheap properties available in these rural areas and they're just trying to bring people back to those. So the towns don't die. And that is kind of the case there. So the property is really affordable. We didn't get one of the $1 ones. Those all go away really quickly, but still, you know, even just buying it direct from the seller, it's, it was very affordable. We got like a 20 acre farm. It has a pond. It's like really cool. I don't know. We love it. It's beautiful. It's in this like incredible mountainous area um, that's known for its wine. It's called Terra Alta. Um, so if you ever see like Spanish wines from Terra Alta, that's, that's where we live. Oh, no way. <laughs> Dude, I've actually, so, I've had those a couple times, I believe. Um, oh, very nice. Yeah. The name wrong. Yeah. That. They're like a dollar there, but like in the States, they're like, you know, 30 bucks. <laughs> it's crazy. Right? Yeah. God, that's amazing. And I've heard, I've, I've never been and done the wine in Europe. Although I've had a couple guests who tell me that it's something about the sulfates or the tannins where it, it's easy to drink all day. I think it was Olivia, Olivia. Yeah. Olivia Grant. Shout out Olivia Grant. She went there with her mom and she was like, I understand now how they're able to drink all day because there's not that like weird hangover and it's the wine's more pure, at least from what she was telling me. I've enjoyed it. I think it's great. I've never had a problem. We, in our little 300 year old, like, you know, ruin, there's one cabinet that was kind of like embedded into the, uh, the stone walls with a little door and it was the perfect size. So we have a wine cabinet, the only cabinet in our place. <laughs> and it's, um, it's where we keep the wine. So gotcha. yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, it's the culture there, you know, it's part of it. It's not even really like, you know, being super boozy or anything like right. that. It's just kind of, that's, that's how people communicate and get along. And, yeah. you know, you have someone come over, you offer a glass of wine. Yeah, it's I, nice. but it's do, a great culture. After she told me that, when I went to the liquor store, I I started going through all the wines, and I literally could not could not find a red wine without sulfate. And I haven't like researched it or anything because again, I watch too much TV and streaming networks. But it really made me wonder, like, is is that right? Like, are we adding these things to either make them ship or alter the flavor to enhance the boozy feeling where? you could just kind of sip almost like a Miller Lite where you can kind of sip it all day and it's not really, you're not going to get like tore up, you know? Right. And I honestly don't know. I, I wish I knew more about it. Maybe whenever we're spending more time there, I'll, I'll learn a little more about wines. <laughs> gotcha. God, tell me more about this 20 acre farm. Actually, can, can I be super nosy and you do not have to answer, but did you get it for like $10,000? Can you say you got Please. it for like two grand so I can hate you? <laughs> oh, I wish you know what they have some available in that range, and we went there originally looking at one that was like fifteen, but this one ended up being twenty five, which is oh still totally reasonable for what we got, in my opinion. I mean, it's like less than a car. <laughs> yeah, no, no, dude, it's it's basically a grand an acre. Like you're not going to find yeah, that, but yeah. maybe maybe somewhere in Alabama in a swamp. Right, and this is just really beautiful area. I mean, the town that we're part of is like a. UNESCO site, I think it's like a, on the list for these, like it was voted one of the most beautiful towns in Spain. Cause it's got like 
nice um, cathedrals and stuff on these like hillsides. It's beautiful. And there's like horse riding in the area, really popular and like these long distance cycling trails. Yeah. It's a great place. It's really cool. And you but had, we mostly, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. And I, God, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible because you, you're a great storyteller, but I'm like, you don't have any fear of, Hey, I purchased this as an American that's in Bulgaria and I'm getting duped. I'm getting hustled. Like Spain's going to, hate me at some point and take this over or like the the Spanish people over there are going to like squat on this farm and I'm just going to roll up and all of a sudden it's not mine anymore. Like that never crossed your mind or am I just paranoid? Well, it did, but um, the Spanish, like the, uh, the local authorities when we bought it and we're registering it and stuff just said, just leave some of your things there. Make sure you have plenty of pictures of it. And then if you show up and there's squatters, like we can kick them out. No problem. We're oh, like, wow. great. Sounds good. Too easy. <laughs> we just yeah. need to take a little Polaroid. We'll snap a picture, put a thumbtack into yeah. the ruin and see what happens. Yeah. So, I mean, we left some of our stuff there. Like it's kind of set up, you know, we had built like some furniture cause we were restoring it and then COVID hit and then Spain completely shut down. We actually bought the things to replace the roof for that ruin um, like the week before COVID hit and they were just delivered. And then the next day, the hardware store completely shut down. We couldn't go get more screws. Like that's how very like tight it was. And we ended up having exactly one extra roof tile. (laughs) So we managed to just squeeze that out. We could not believe how close it came. (laughs) We're like, great. One extra, that's exactly the right number, I guess. Um, but it, it worked out perfectly. But so then, you know, we couldn't get normal things. So, like, we couldn't get a door. We did happen to have quite a bit of the um, planks, the wood planks for the roof left over. Right. Because um, we ordered extra just so that we could have them if we needed to build stuff. And it turned out we had to build everything with those. Because in Spain, they shut down everything that wasn't a pharmacy or a grocery store. And it's not like here where you can go to a grocery store like a Walmart or Target and still get like other things there for stores that had more than just groceries. They shut down those other aisles and wouldn't sell anything. So we actually didn't have very many blankets with us and wanted to get more blankets and we didn't have pillows. Um, But then we went to the store to try and get them and they were like, yeah, we can't sell those things now because COVID. So we had to like kind of, you know, um, rig it a little bit. I was able to finally find some blankets at a, a Lytle, which is the equivalent of like Aldi. And they were, able to sell them to me and then I like used them to stuff pillows and like made pillows out of them and are so you're buying saws you're buying ladders and I guess that's part of the like economic um stimulus that comes when people buy these homes because you're getting all these extra supplies from the town itself in order to fix it up yeah mostly although we bought quite a bit of things um like so we set up a solar system uh for the place but we bought um like all the pieces and had them like here in bulgaria and set them up in matt's office and then we also bought a lot of our tools here um that we wanted to use and then we bought a really old like um ford transit van in bulgaria things are very inexpensive okay (laughs) i should clarify like this it sounds so extravagant but it was really like the cheapest way to do it It it's cheaper than flying and shipping the stuff yeah yeah yeah. Uh, so we bought this old van and like loaded it up with our stuff and we drove there from bulgaria which was like a three-day drive we had a little mattress that we'd sleep on in the back of the van we'd like pull in the 
you know, like a rest stop and a nap and then keep driving. It was actually a really fun way to get there. You're such a fucking gangster. God, you're a gangster. <laughs> oh my God. So that dude, that makes perfect sense. And what, again, just what a great, what a great experience to go. Dude, tell me more about this hey. farm. Make me more jealous of your farm. Well, part of the reason we got it was because we just, you know, we were thinking about it. Like we're so separated from being able to do things ourselves. You know, you, you want something painted. You might hire someone to paint your house. It's like, who can't paint, you know, a wall. (laughs) And it's like, we realize that in, in this day, you know, there's so many things that if shit hit the fan as it is right now, kind of, um, but like, we won't know how to handle for ourselves. So we just wanted to use this as a time to become like a little more self-reliant and just sort of experiment with things that we can't really do in our normal house, you know? So there, there's plenty of land. I learned, I got to learn how to weld for it, which was really cool. Um, learning just different skills, you know, I'm also not a very good gardener, so I want to like work on gardening, but you know, there's a ton of stuff that you might want to work on and don't have the space or place to do it. And that's why we got this farm and we're you know the hope is to to bring people there that can also try things that they want to work on and do and we'd like to host you know sort of retreats there so for people who want to come there and do yoga we have plenty of friends who treat who teach yoga and so we've offered you know them the opportunity to bring people there and do like a yoga retreat on it because it does have like really nice views and good spots for that or people who want to you know come learn how to farm olives how do you make olive oil like we don't know but we're gonna figure it out in november uh when we have to harvest and a lot of it was like watching youtube videos and you know we learned how to set up an entire solar array and connect it to our house from watching youtube videos and it's stuff like you know which kind of you know how many what size batteries do you need okay what kind of you know the actual solar panels do you need? How do you connect those? Are you doing series, parallel, whatever, you know? And so it's just really like a learning place. And, and that's why we, we got it and like, you know, chose it as an investment. Um, But also like we, once we got there, we realized that like, as much as we want it just as a space to kind of like learn things for ourselves, we also really want to, take care of this house like just the feeling you have whenever you're there around this like really old house I mean it's older than the United States you yeah, know right? yeah so like as we're you know digging out the floor to lay a foundation we're finding like these old Spanish tiles that are like painted and still intact and you just have to wonder like who put that there you know how long has that been there um so you really kind of get like caught up in the history of it and just like the weight of how many people have lived there and like spent time there. And, you know, we want to eventually name the farm after the person who um, had lived there for like 60 years. Uh, Like not the previous owner, but the one before that. Uh, But we haven't actually figured out his name yet. (laughs) Uh, So we have to go back through the registry, but we heard stories about him. So we're going to name the farm after him and like maybe put up a plaque or something in his honor because it's not necessarily like it's ghost, you know, it's haunted or anything like that, but it's like you get a real sense that someone took care of it. Someone put a lot of work into it and it's nice to be able to respect that by restoring it. Do you have to hire like town people or something for the time you're not there to maintain? Or is is it just like the terrain you kind of just let it be? I, I guess I'm over Americanized cause I'm like, dude, I got to cut my grass once a week. Right. So now I'm thinking like 20 acres. Good Lord. How am I? How is that getting handled eight months while I'm not there? 
Right. So we talked to Pedro is the guy who sold it to us and he's been really helpful through everything. And he is like, like the town fun guy. Everyone in our town knows Pedro. So when we say we (laughs) bought the land from Pedro, they're like, Oh, Pedro. Um, And he's, he's a great person. So he is actually caring for it while we're gone, but all it actually needs is um, to be tilled twice a year. So he just takes his tractor out there. It's 90 euro. He, tills all the land and, and leaves and that's it. And um, that makes it so that nothing is competing with our trees for the rainwater. So okay. they get enough water through the rain and everything's fine. Um, the only thing other than that that we have to do is like in November we have to harvest. So that's what we're going to learn this year when we go back. Yeah. it are, um, Is that hand picking? Is it almost like apples where you just strap a like a basket around your neck? And you just handpick or is there some sort of like automation that does that? No. So I think the only thing that we're harvesting right now, because our almond trees are still pretty young. So I think we'll mostly be harvesting just the olives this year. And um, there you just put a shaker on the tree. I don't know. It's like a tractor attachment. It's a big net and then like a padded little like hands. They shake the tree and all the olives fall out and get caught in the net. Dude, that's uh, God. I'm so ignorant. That's amazing. Like, it's amazing. I didn't know it either <laughs> right? Pedro showed us, so don't feel bad. Yeah, but that sounds so simple. And it's also, like, kind of amazing that you can shake a tree, not unroot it, but the olives, I guess, with their ripeness and, and weight are just almost, like, ready. They're being – they're asking to come off. Like, it's nature is amazing yeah. like that. Yeah, and it's all about timing, and, and that's why we're deferring to Pedro on so many things because – we really want to learn. We want to do right by the trees, but we, we don't know what we're doing. And so, you know, we're going to have him there to help us this year at least and maybe for a few years to come until we get the hang of it. We don't have the, the harvester either. So, you know, that's something that we'll, we'll pay to use his and it's like very small fees. Things are, you know, farmers are, are nice and usually willing to help each other out too, which is awesome. Yeah, because they're not wasting their time on Amazon Prime and Netflix. Man, I got to change my life. You're, you're, you're really inspiring me this morning. It's either you or the Thanks, coffee Sean, that I'm I drinking. It. But I am feeling inspired. Oh, the coffee helps. <laughs> oh, and so then, and this will be the last kind of nerdy question. And I, oh, again, God, I, I like finding out a little bit about myself and how my brain works in comparison to others. And all I can do now is go like real capitalistic taxes on a 20 acre farm that you pay 25K for. Are, do you pay like annual taxes? Do you pay taxes on like the, the crops themselves to the town? Like the reoccurring costs, I guess, is what I'm trying to think of. Yeah. So I think our taxes are like 50 euro a year. Stop. Maybe like 100 euro a year. Stop yeah. It. They're like nothing. Why do I not <laughs> it's ridiculous. have one of these? Dude, why like, do it's I been not? hard to track down. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm so, Why do I not have one? Why am I fucking buying Boeing stock and Delta stock? When I need to be investing this money into a farm and just figuring out a way how to fly yeah, over there. Yeah, you could really easily get like a $10,000 farm. <laughs> oh my God. Um, Dude, I'm, I'm yeah, hitting they're... you up for some links when we get off. Good God. Let's not talk about it anymore. I don't want anyone else getting ideas. Fair <laughs> enough. Happy to send them. <laughs> Dude, but right? Like, should that should absolutely be a thing, man. I, I can't believe it's not more of a thing. Yeah, well, here's another thing, though. So just sidebar, Um, 
there are probably going to be a lot more farms up for sale after January 1st because um, with Brexit, it, it is. So the thing is, it is a thing, but mostly for like British people. Um, oh. So there's a ton of British people who have, you know, realized this is a great opportunity. It's a great place to live and bought places there. And then with Brexit, their visas will no longer be valid. So we have a ton of friends who, you know, are British uh, citizens living in Spain on these farms and are going to have to either move back or figure something out with their visas. So a lot of people who were doing that probably are going to like leave it, you know, and, and sell, which is, it's unfortunate, but also, I mean, just saying it's like, it's an opportunity. If you're looking, there's going to probably be a lot available. No, dude, I'm, I'm on it. I got one quarter to build up my cash reserve. That's it. I'm on. There you go. I'm, I'm building up cash right now for it. That's something, dude, again, like my, my romanticized ignorance. I'm like, that's true. So if I bought a farm, how long can I stay in Spain before I get kicked out? You get three months, three months in, three months out, three months in. Oh, okay. oh dude. Perfect. Summer. So it's my summer yeah, retreat. Yeah. And then you fly over. So you maybe. can go there for summer. And then also, uh, I don't know how cold Delaware is probably pretty cold. So then winter, Yeah, no, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, cause Spain is really mild, has really mild winters, uh, which is why we chose that place as well. Um, it's like, you know, it'll be in the fifties most days. Oh man. God. So you get paid by Spain to advertise for them, right? This is something <laughs> like you're an ambassador of some sort. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I see. I mean, you're just selling it, dude. I, God. All right. Last piece of advice on buying a farm in Spain. If there's something we haven't gotten into yet, is there something else people should know? Cause this is so enthralling to me. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, well, the only other thing that you might want to know is like coming at it as an American, it took us like four months to get our, uh, property title. But oh. I mean, we were able to do the signing for it in about two hours at the local notary. So, um, you know, things just move at Spanish pace and like, you know, get into the lifestyle, man. They have a siesta. Like when we first got there, we were like, oh, the siesta is so annoying. Like everything's closed in the middle of the day. But then like you start, you know, taking a long lunch, have a little rest after lunch. And you're like, oh, I could get used to this. (laughs) Yeah. So you not having the property title, that's not like keeping you from being on the property, is it? No, not at all. Um, yeah, right? It's it was perfectly fine. You know, it's it's important to know like where your property is, what kind of property you're getting. Like, do your research before you buy something. Obviously, you know, um, and just like the truth is, like it's easy to restore things that are already there. It's hard to get permission to build new ah, things or monstrosities. Got you. So easy to restore, hard to build. I feel mm-hmm. like that's a more serving the people headliner quote than Sean, you're absolutely right. I feel like, I feel like that might be <laughs> a little more important to the overall message. Yeah. <laughs> Easy to restore, hard to build. That's a great point. Is it just, they don't, is it the materials coming in or they just like their architecture and it's almost like what would be a historical district um, in Delaware where I live. If you buy a home that's from like the 1800s or that was like colonized or settled, they don't want you tearing it down and building whatever. It's legally protected. Is that the thought process? It's exactly you know? like that. Yeah. So okay. they put in a lot of protections and even the building materials you're required to use as you do restore have to be in line with like um, 
the old style because when you go there, it looks like you're stepping back 300 years in time. It's intentionally preserved and they put a lot of effort into that. And that's what makes it so beautiful, you know, no and doubt. desirable to, to be there. So, I mean, you can respect that. It's frustrating when you're like, man, I wish I could have, you know, a 2000 square foot place on here, but it's like, or you can have this like ancient place and have a loft and like right. learn to live within, you know, how people actually lived when they were there. Yeah. So, Man, yeah, that's um, and the the building material. So finding roof tiles that were similar to those of years past, like walls and things. I get like they don't really do drywall then, huh? <laughs> no, and interestingly, you're required to save your tiles too because they're historical pieces. They're they're necessary for restoring. So even when we took the old tiles off, we have to save them and either put them back into the system to recycle them or reuse them on our own property. Oh. Um, you can't just trash them either. They, they like, they respect the things that have been there. And I think that that's actually a really nice lesson that anyone can take from that. Yeah, you know? man. And again, it's that consumerism that you want to fight that Amazon, like, Oh, I just want to put up this brand new roof. It's like, it's awesome that they actually have a system where you can reuse, refurbish these things. And is that what you're purchasing when you're looking to, if you have to fix tiles that get broken for whatever reason, you're buying other people's older tiles or that's an option. So for us, we didn't because we were redoing the whole roof and uh, it's not a very big roof, but it was like a project we were taking on on our own and we needed to get it done in like a week because it was going to start raining. So we actually <laughs> just, um, because we were replacing the whole thing, we got new tiles, but they're aged tiles. So even the new tiles are made to look like old tiles. Gotcha. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Man, that's God. I've, I've said it too much. It's amazing what you can do when you just don't stream shit. Yeah. Well, thanks. I don't, not to like say that there's anything wrong with TV or anything. I just, um, no, I'm not saying I don't you're really saying have that. like the, the sit down capacity for it. Yeah. No, dude, I'm not, I'm not trying to put those words in your mouth. I'm trying to say them as my own realization of like, come on, man. Like it's, I don't know. It, it's something that you can just see culturally even growing up when cable's coming up. So I'm, what am I? I'm 39. So, you know, you grow up as the typical latchkey cable watching kid. You get home from school and like, before you know it, it's six o'clock and you're like, dude, that was three hours of life that you've just spent watching the saved by the bell or whatever, you know, like yeah. why, why are you doing that? But then it can kind of, as I've grown up, like I have to fight that urge to just continually mm -hmm. zone out. Like I'm like, I have to tell myself, like, dude, you haven't earned the right to just lay on a couch for three hours yet. Like, what have you actually done? What have you worked? Have you worked out? Have you run? Have you stimulated your mind? Have you cleaned? Things like that. And it's very easy to get into that um, state. And then all of a sudden you're like, dude, I could have spent three weeks researching how to buy a property in Spain. And then another week using that three hours to research cheapest, easiest ways to fly to make a schedule. And then maybe another week being like, how could I earn money or what could an alternative business be that would allow me the time to travel and experience these things, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, there you go. And and that's not completely unlike how we went about it. Our like deciding we want a property in Spain to actually like signing and closing on it was about a month and a half. We went really fast right. with it. Um, faster than we normally would move on anything, but it just – seemed like so the right thing and exactly what we wanted. Right. Uh, we did lose our first property. There's a bit of a land grab in Spain at the time now. Well, I don't know about right now, but when we bought, um, so it was pretty competitive 
properties were priced really low, but also like for the nice ones, they go in a week, you know? Mm. So it was interesting. Like we lost our first property that we, we had already signed a contract on and then they signed a second contract with someone else and they got it. Um, and so we then were like very aggressive buyers. And the next one we were like, we're buying this, let's sign tomorrow. You know, we're not leaving this country until it's ours. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So then you, you have boots on the ground and for this, you're oh, not yeah, just like internet like shopping. Three trips. We were there every weekend for like three or four weeks. But see, in in Europe, to fly there from Bulgaria, it's like sixty bucks, so <laughs> it wasn't a big deal, you know. Gotcha. Is there? And I guess because we've spoken about this long, um, longer. Funny how you can speak about Spanish farms longer than you can uh, therapy dogs or emotional support yeah. animals. But is there like a like Zillow.com for Spain that could like people, if they're listening and are interested, could actually go to, to do some preliminary scanning. Absolutely. Um, I think what I used was called idealista. Huh. I'm going to give you the, I have two, there are two websites that I used ex- extensively um, and still look at them because like, I'm not, it's not totally off my radar to maybe end up getting like a really inexpensive beachfront property in Spain. Oh dude, you just, Don't you take nailed my it. property. You just, you just <laughs> nailed it right there. No man, we can go halvesies on it or something, man. Um, there you go. Cause my, my, my hope is for my impending midlife crisis to not buy the Corvette, but to buy something yeah. in Spain. It's, you could get a place for like way less than the Corvette. Right? You can get apartments on the beach, like beautiful view oceanfront apartments near like a rock of Gibraltar for like dirt cheap, like less than a hundred grand. Yeah. That's um, yeah. not to like just really sell it, but I, I've been like, <laughs> I'm, I'm such a fan. That's the thing. Um, yeah. So one is idealista, I D E A L I S T A.com. And then, um, See, the other is photocasa.es, so F-O-T-O-C-A-S-A dot E-S. And those are the two that I use to to find the properties. Gotcha. Yeah, man. And then, so that's amazing. So you got to do a little searching, then you book a, hopefully you can get there in time, book a flight, and just be ready when you feel it to be like, nah, man, here's the cash. I want it today. Yeah, we went with about like eight different properties. So we did a ton of research. We made a spreadsheet, you know, it right. had the different properties and like where they were and we ranked them and what we liked about them. Um, so we went and we viewed like our top ones first. And then as soon as we found one that felt perfect, we like acted on it really quickly. I mean, and maybe especially with COVID, it's probably like a lot less competitive now. Um, and like I said, after January, there will probably be more things on the market for people just choosing to go back to uh, the UK rather than dealing with like changing their visa and stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. But dude, I mean, it's, it honestly seems kind of perfect to three in three out if you want um, that lifestyle. And I really do wonder with the remote work, like we were talking about earlier, how easy would it be to maybe convince your boss where you're not taking a vacation for a month, but you're working just from Spain for a month and you go over there for whatever January, you know? Yeah, just working remotely. I think yeah. after COVID, that's going to be a really easy thing to do. Yeah, right. Because it has to be. It has to be proven at this point. I have um, a friend whose wife drives an hour each way to work, um, and she's a really big deal. It's for like a chicken processing thing. So COVID, the office closed. She's at home. She's like, it's amazing that I can 
forget just losing the two hours a day to the car ride. The fact that I can log in now at 8 a.m. and be this productive without having yeah. to deal with just even like the little office stuff of someone taking up 10 minutes of your time or if you walk somewhere being held up in like three extra conversations. She's like the, the four hour work week, which was like a book. It, it's I think it was a book or maybe it was just an article. It is a real thing. Like if you just get mm-hmm. down to business and handle it, you don't worry about the drive. You don't worry about easing into it. It's like, yeah, eight o'clock, log in, boom, let me work. The time she had opened up in her life, she was like, it's, it's life altering. So I think she gets to work remote now one day a week and she's thrilled. She's like, it's, it, it's, that's it's, great. It's, yeah. It's, it's life changing and it de-stresses you, you know, cause that sucks 10 hours a week in a car. Like who, who really yeah. wants to do that? And I think for people who are self-motivated enough to be able to work remotely, it's an awesome solution. Yeah. And like I said, you can do it anywhere. Um, not to just like, <laughs> I'm not trying to like name drop of places, but whatever, uh, we spent some time in Bali and there was a girl there who was doing that exact thing. She was working remotely. She was, um, an artist that does like, uh, the drawings for, Oh shoot. I'm animator for like, uh, a bunch of different brands and things. Okay. And um, she would work. She said she'd work about like, she'd need to do about, you know, one project. Um, she could really get by with one project a month, but she tried to do about one project a week. It would take her maybe eight hours to do the whole thing. And other than that, she had free time. And she just like, that was her life. Yeah. She traveled, she did her work as she needed to. And like, she was chilling out in Bali for six months. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, so, it, on the farm in Spain, internet access, I guess, would be the thing. Do you it, yeah, are, so are you getting it through like satellite or is it like the hardwired somehow? We actually just uh, we use our phone internet in Spain. It's a lot cheaper than the states, so you can get like a twenty gigs or maybe even an unlimited plan for like twenty euro a month. Um, oh wow! I think what we got was like a twenty gigs for 20 euros. And then if we run out of that, we just re up for another 20 euros. So it's like almost 20, $22 us. Um, and yeah, and that's just kind of like a pay as you go. Right. And it's, it's fast. I mean, we could stream any video we wanted. It was fine. Yeah. We had no problems with it at all. That's amazing. And you're just using the phones as like the hotspot or what would be like the Wi-Fi router in your house then. Huh? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Man, God, you're just making this too easy. So what, I, I want to become like your agent. <laughs> we went through agent. a lot of trouble to no, figure it out though. No doubt, dude, because it is, it's overwhelming. When you start trying to add up all the little things that make life worth living in that situation, you can be so overwhelmed. Like you would just, you would be paralyzed because you, what path do I take? What direction do I go? Who do I ask? How can I trust? You know? So it's, I, I think your experience to me, I, I, I appreciate you giving so much knowledge. I Inspirational inspirational i'm in oh, delaware and i'm inspired i appreciate it <laughs> all right man now i gotta are, are you doing okay on time i didn't ask you beforehand but i mean these tend to go pretty long are you all right time wise yeah yeah i'm actually i'm fine um i i don't have anywhere to be for a while like awesome. i've got hours so no nice. worries dude well because again just don't mean to name drop or accomplish drop ultra marathon runner i'm so curious in that because i plan on going for a jog after this and right I hit I, I hit five and five point three miles is what I'm up to, and I'm at a, maybe a eight minute pace where I'm comfortable. I'm not really pushing. I'm listening to a podcast, jamming out to music. 
you said 100 miles, and I don't know how people like you get in that mind state to just get through it. That amazes me. Yeah. Well, thank you. First of all, eight-minute pace is really solid. Way to go. Five miles is totally respectable. Nicely done. A plus, you know, from my <laughs> perspective, not that it's worth much, but <laughs> just kudos to you on that starting out. Um, my, uh, yeah, for ultra marathons, what happened for me getting into it was I was barely running at all. I was running maybe like one to four miles, you know, just like casually when I felt like it, not consistently. And then um, I went to this relay race with my friends. I wasn't even running it. I was just there to support. And um, part of it, they had these some people at this race. This was when I lived in Hawaii. So it was at the Kualoa Ranch out there. And they had some people who were um, doing the relay solo. So it's like a 12-hour relay race. And you have team members, and they run this five-mile loop as many times as possible. And you switch off each loop okay. to a different person. And so there were some people who were doing the solo and at the, you know, the award ceremony afterwards, they were saying, Oh yeah, these are the solo runners. They're getting ready for this uh, hundred mile race through the mountains in the next, next couple weeks or something. Um, you know, and they're doing this like a practice run. So-and-so ran 65 miles, you know, <laughs> and I, instead of being like, you know, the normal response, which is like, wow, these people are nuts. I was like, those are my people. Let's do that. <laughs> Like literally went so, from just not regularly jogging. How, how did that, how did you connect to that tribe? What was it that connected you to it? You know, I just, for some reason, that level of challenge really resonated with me. And so I, you know, I, I found out that they have group runs that they're doing for training. I started showing up to those. They weren't all super long. Some of them, you know, were five, 10 miles like normal stuff that seemed reasonable for me. Um, and so I started going to those. I baked a lot of cookies and baked goods and I'd always take snacks and hang around afterwards and be like, here, eat my food and tell me what you do. <laughs> you know? um, and so I just really like got involved with those people. I, I signed up for a hundred mile race after learning about that. And I was basically, it was 11 months later. So I went 11 months from like a, almost couched a hundred miler like you know I could run like a mile or two consistently um yeah and then 11 months later you know I, I ran my first hundred miler and also in that time I did naked and afraid um because that popped up kind of unexpectedly and I'd already planned that race <laughs> so I went ahead and just went for both and luckily I finished I made it through it was great I won my age category which was easy because there weren't a lot of people my age doing those super long races. Right. It's like, and, yes, uh, I, I was first and last since I was the only one in my age category. <laughs> yes, that's me. <laughs> Dude, I, I want to I wanna get into, because I don't know what goes into a hundred miles. You're not doing like a hundred miles consecutively, are you? Is that even yeah, possible? Yeah, so, yeah, actually my, my longest, so I've, I've attempted a 200 plus mile race. Stop. Uh, two summers ago no last summer uh but i i dropped out at like 120 miles uh because it was in the himalayas and we had some really bad snowstorms um and i was not quite prepared for those so i'm going back hopefully next year if it's open to do it again that's the plan um but that race uh has never had a female finisher and it's 11 years of running so oh. i'm i'm like set on on being that girl you know um 
but yeah, so my, my longest race at this point is 122 miles. I think it was a 200 kilometer race in Malaysia and, uh, it was hot and, my mom came out to support me. So you get to have like a crew, you know, like a pit crew. You're like a, like a NASCAR driver. These people that just like, you know, give you food and water and stuff. It's, it's neat. It's a really interesting, weird sport. Yeah. I, I, I need, I can't picture it. I need way more details. Like when you're talking pick. Okay. So you're on like a 20 mile, some sort of loop where you get to come in and rest or like you're literally kind of in jogging and they're throwing grapes in your mouth, squirting water to keep you, I don't know, energized? So every race is different. Um, There's a race that we're doing in two months in Greece. And for one section, it's like 20 something miles before you see another aid station. Um, So I won't have any access to like food, water, et cetera, for 20 miles um, on one stretch of that. Normally, like in the States, usually they're like every three to five miles, you'll, you'll have they'll set up like a table in the woods, you know, with water and snacks. And sometimes you can have your crew, the people that you've chosen to come with you access that. Okay. And they can come in and like, it's nice to have someone who knows you and knows your system there to help fill your pack as you carry water and food and stuff like that. And to like, make sure that you're eating like you should, or make sure that you've had the salt pills that you should make sure you have the clothing that you need for the next section, because as much as it's a mental sport to race that long, um, your brain really kind of shuts off, you know, like I can't do even basic math, like 30 miles into one of these things. <laughs> so, uh, I need other people to think for me. And that's the great thing about having a crew is that they can do that. And all I have to do is just move forward as much as possible and as quickly as possible. Um, but for the race in the Himalayas and also the race in Malaysia, uh, that I was just speaking about, you actually get a crew car. So those are on a road. And as you're running, the the car kind of stays with you. They don't drive exactly beside you, but you know, you can see them every five minutes if you want, or okay. you can tell them, you know, go five miles ahead. I don't need anything right now. Gotcha. Um, so it's kind of, you know, your preference there. That's, and how many, what's the longest amount of consecutive miles without stopping that you've run? Um, do you mean without stopping like for a drink or do you mean like in a race? Yeah. Oh, no, I mean, I guess like when I go for a jog, I've never jogged to see how far I can jog before I have to walk. So I, maybe I'm not asking oh, okay. it the right way, but like, cause when you say a hundred mile or when with these pit stops and stuff, I'm wondering just the human body in general, is there like a drop dead point where the body's just like, nah, man, we're, we're, we're done jogging. We're done walking. You have to actually physically stop because I'm depleted. I'm exhausted. Yeah. You know, I don't really think so because that's the thing. It's like, um, you get so used to kind of managing your speed. I mean, think of it less of like running or jogging and more of like for walking, you could probably pretty much just walk forever. I mean, if you, as long as you're not putting (laughs) in too much effort. (laughs) Um, So I guess it's like that, you know, like you just keep walking. Most of it, it's like, I, I have definitely, laid down on rocks and on the side of the road and taken a 15 minute power nap in these races. Uh, okay. But the clock keeps running, other runners keep running. So, right. you know, you really don't get much of a break ever um, until you finish. <laughs> so I, I guess it just depends on how competitive you're trying to be in the race, um, how much you're willing to like slow down. I usually can run pretty consistently for like the first 40 miles of a race, but 
some of these two are, you know, super mountainous races. Like yeah. this race we're doing in a couple of months, I'll run the first 12 miles because they're downhill. But then after that, it's a massive climb and I'm going to use sticks to hike with, you know, the uh, like hiking sticks. Okay. So, and it's, it's a whole lot less of a run and a whole lot more of just a power hike. Um, so it just, it really depends on the terrain. Gotcha. Yeah. That's the other thing that's amazing to me. So Delaware, we have a pretty big running community in, in Delaware, especially near the coast. And part of it is because we're so flat, you know, I I don't think there's a hill in Sussex County, not like an official hill. So like our elevation, we beach wise, you go from whatever, five feet elevated to maybe on a typical course, you're hitting like 20, 30 feet of elevation. So it's flat and fast and people can come here for quality. Like we're a boss. We have a race we did pre-COVID that was a um, a Rehoboth Marathon. That's a Boston uh, Marathon qualifier. Or I guess you go into the system and a lot of people will travel because we're so close to New York, Philly, D.C., all these places where you take a weekend, you get a fast, flat course and it's so much easier. Yeah, get your BQ. (laughs) Yeah, right? So dude, when you're talking about mountains and Himalayas, uh, my mind is going ape. I just can't, that, that that's, that's amazing that that's like the culture of these hundred mile races. It's like not enough that the distance is so hard. We're going to make the terrain just screw with you and try to break you that much more involved. That's absolutely true. Yeah. That's, that's the mindset of a lot of them. They, you know, market them as like world's toughest race and all this stuff. But what's really neat about it is, and so different than, you know, a road ultra marathon or I'm sorry, a road marathon and stuff like that is that a lot of times, you know, you're there to be in nature. You're there, like, being out there is the fun of it. You know, it's not finishing that's the experience. It's actually being out there and, like, getting to go through all these incredible different, like, terrains and, like, you're seeing mountains, you're in swamps, you're crossing rivers, you're climbing up waterfalls. Like, it's just a really incredible adventure. And so that's what makes these really resonate with me and something that like I continue to seek out and want to do. Yeah. That, um, again, the way you're describing it, it's awesome. Um, it, it sounds like a, I've always wanted to do one of those like Spartan mud pit things. Have you heard about those? You know, like you're jumping over fire or whatever, you're crawling under barbed wire and it sounds like yours, um, these hundred miles, especially if you find these terrains just make, like a destination trip to kind of work out, but it's going to be absolutely beautiful. You know, like you could spend yeah. weeks around there. And how That's true. the training wise, what part of your day is committed to like, do you spend four hours a day jogging running? No. So I spend a lot of times on the weekends. Um, so on the weekends, it might be, you know, an eight hour run on Saturday and a 10 or 12 hour run on Sunday. And usually I'll like start it off or no, follow it up with like a, you know, four or five hour Monday run. But, um, no, through the week, it's like, you know, I'll go out for like, uh, eight to 13 miles any given day. Uh, but not every day I take days off. Um, we, we're going to have, uh, Carl Meltzer train, uh, Matt for this uh, upcoming race. So he's a really prominent ultra runner and we're really grateful to have him uh, on board to coach us. And because of that, like we're going to, I don't have the training schedule yet. It's going to be kind of whatever he says to do. And I just sort of like go along with Matt and do what I can. Um, gotcha. But yeah. So what we'll do for the weekends though, our normal like 
ramp up for these big races is a uh, it's 10 30 20 um so it's like a friday saturday sunday or uh sunday uh, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, depending on our schedules, but it's a 10 miler, then a 30 miler the next day, then a 20 miler the third. And then, you know, a, a day off and then a couple runs in the middle of the week. And then hopefully another day off if we can swing it. And then another 10, 30, 20. So those, those are usually enough to get you there. Um, and, you know, as, when I started running, I was more there for the adventure and much slower, uh, but now it's been about five years and, and so I'm pretty competitive. Like when I do races, I, I go there, you know, with the intent of at least like podium finishing, but you know, I've, I've won one. Uh, and then I've had like quite a few podium finishes. I've gotten really good at getting second place, <laughs> which isn't like, it's nice, but it's not winning. <laughs> I don't know. So not to be like salty about it. I'm, I'm grateful, you know, to get to compete, but I, I have room to improve. How, uh, man, I, I'm just, I'm amazed that the human body, and it speaks again to my weakness, you can go back to back to back days with that sort of mileage. That's insane, right? The recovery when you get done with the 30, so a 10, 30, 20, you get done with the 30, are you just having to be off your feet for the rest of the day? Do you sleep immediately? Oh yeah, Is it you're about- thrashed. Like, <laughs> there's nothing else going on. Well, actually, you know what? Once I, uh, like, when I was training for one of my earlier 100 milers, I was, I had a more, like, active social life outside of running. And so, you know, I would, I could go out for even, like, a 40, I remember one morning specifically, I went out for a 40-mile run, and then I went to, like, some dinner with some friends and I was a little like sleepy and you know off I was like sorry guys like I did 40 miles this morning so like I'm a little you know if I seem uninterested it's because I'm just pretty tired and they were like wait excuse me (laughs) you know um I'm just amazed the body can recuperate the human body really is amazing the fact that it can go through that and function man it's truly incredible. Yeah, it's almost like no matter what you put yourself through, if you give yourself three or four hours, you're like totally human again. It's like nothing happened. And how important is the diet when you're training along with this? Or do you not um, care because you're burning so many calories, you can just eat pizza and Big Macs and all that? Right. That's such a good question. So we're vegetarians. Um, oh. So we're like... Yeah, so already we kind of have that going for us um, because, you know, it's a lot easier to process plants than meat. It's not heavy. It doesn't sit in you. So it's it's helpful for racing and for running. Uh, but, yeah, usually it'll be after our third long run we'll, like, splurge on pizza. Um, but not in between the long runs because then you kind of feel, like, sick and sluggish the next day. So I make a lot of soups. We try to do like a somewhat low carb. I, I just try to balance things. You know, I, I do a lot of protein shakes, things like that. Okay. Really low carb. I would think that that would be the opposite, man. I would think it would be spaghetti and you would just be trying to, again, with my ignorance, carb up cause you're going to be burning so much. Yeah. So we try and go for carbs during the run and then outside of running, we try to go low carb. I'm definitely not a nutrition expert, but it's, it's helped, um, in the past, like it's worked for us so far. Uh, because part of it is like, you don't want to put extra weight on right before your race that you're going to have to carry every pound matters. So we do tend to like lean out a little bit, um, you know, right before races. So the low carb helps with that a lot. Got you. 
because yeah, right with the pounding of the joints, or it's just um, that's funny. You say every pound matters because it is. You're you're having to propel each pound forward, which takes energy, which takes time, right? Yeah. At a hundred miles, every ounce matters. You know, I'm like, I will not carry one extra thing. You know, I'm like, take the wrapper off of that granola bar. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. So, what are you snacking on as you're running? Do you get? Does it matter? Is there a particular thing? Like, I've seen these gel tabs that some people take when they're like training for marathons. But other than that, I have no idea what a good snack is if you're trying to train for this kind of distance. Yeah, I have a really hard time with the consistency of things like those gels, but um, we we do this drink mix. It's called Tailwind. It's uh, so they make versions with caffeine in them, which I love for overnight races, um, and that kind of like gives you a nice baseline. Um, and then on top of that, I try to eat like um, I'll make these like protein bars or not bars, but balls, like the ones where you put like peanut butter and oats and chia seeds and you make them into circles and like, um, you put those in a Ziploc. I can eat those. We'll just take like, honestly, candy bars with us. If we're being lazy, we'll just like throw some granola bars and candy bars in our bag. I used to put a lot more effort into what I ate when I run, but, um, now we kind of just like go with whatever is easy and available. And that's kind of like, the like the not fun answer. No, but it, um, I think but it like speaks, we're like super lazy ultra runners. No, it speaks to your competitive nature and your iron will, and it's all about your determination to hell with the diet. It's about what burns inside <laughs> me. That's how I'm getting there. Thanks. Yeah, I have, I've had a lot of people, like especially when I first started running these things, ask me like, "What shoes do you wear and stuff?" And I'm like. It is not the shoes. I will run this damn thing in any pair of shoes you give me or barefoot if I have to. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it can help, but it's it's still funny that it's like that doesn't make it or break it, you know. No, I um I actually have the same philosophy um with so my daughter's getting into field hockey, and she's it's kind of <laughs> neat. She's a little bit of a runner. Um, she does some cross country stuff, but it's neat to see her in a competitive sport that involves a ball and more like teamwork. Cause running is a lot like mm-hmm. baseball. It's just very isolated. Um, but you see some of these girls go out there and field hockey stick. You can spend $200 on a field hockey stick. Like I, I got one handed oh, wow. down to me from someone else and it's chipping the handles coming off. And I'm like, I don't know if you've earned this $200 thing. Girl. Like, like, by the way, do you even need it? Like, like you're doing pretty well. What, can we keep playing with this so that it, until it breaks in half? And then we have a need right. to get and replace. We shouldn't just replace to replace. And I feel sometimes when you go to running, it's so much about like the look and the marketing that goes into it for the runners that like they're relying on this type of gear, this type of shoe. And you're like, I've always been skeptical of that. I want to get a decent shoe that has some good padding on it, but I don't know if I need to do the $250 ultra running blank. Right. And that's the thing. It's um, so there's a quote that I love and I've heard this. It's all the uh, all the gear and no idea. (laughs) And um, I find that to be so true. Every time I try to like get into something new, if I'm not confident in my abilities, I like buy all the stuff, you know, to try and like make up for my lack of it. But yeah, when I first got into running, I had so much crap and like would just carry an unreasonable amount of stuff with me on these races. And now I'm like, you know, I found that it's like, I don't care the brand of my rain jacket. 
I'll probably use the one that I got like for $14 on Amazon or like free at that last race. You know, it's like kind of just, you realize eventually that it's like, it's you out there and that's what makes a difference. And it's not the stuff that you have. Yeah, I think I think that's what it is about, right? And I think that stuff can almost make you a little soft if you start cuz then it's like you almost doubt yourself, right? You you start relying right, on the yeah. gear as the thing and it's it's not the gear. What and I think that's almost like a common theme. It's like the placebo effect when someone's like, "But I can't actually it was in Space Jam. I was watching Space God, I do really watch way too much video." So in Space Jam, Michael Jordan tricks the Looney Tunes with this like Michael's secret juice. And then at the end, he's like, guys, yeah. it's just water. It's always been within you. And they're like, what? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, it, it, you can trick your mind sometimes, but it's probably not the healthiest thing to become somewhat reliant on the gear. Right, because then at that one race where your suitcase gets lost and you don't have your stuff and you have to like go to decathlon and get whatever you can for it, then it's like you're way off your game and you you already yeah. are doubting yourself going into it. Right. But I think that that's something I really learned through participating in Naked and Afraid also is that like it has nothing to do with the stuff, you know, out there they take away all your stuff. You've got no stuff and um, and you can still just like, you know, power through because because you're right. It's inside you, you know, all that will and the ability to do these things. They're within you and they're your abilities. How and I, I want to go back to and ask when you're running these distances. Because you said after, I think you said 40 miles, you can't even do basic math. Oh, oh yeah. Right? No. <laughs> so until, until you get to that point, it's such a time commitment to train eight hours. Do you have like a Bluetooth in your ear where you're like handling business calls? Are you, how many playlists do you have? Are you super into podcasts? How are you, what are you doing for eight hours while you go for a jog? Well, the fun thing is you can listen to an entire audiobook. <laughs> oh, that's a great point. There's a whole book. <laughs> so you go audio. I listen to uh, I've got audiobooks, I've got podcasts, I've there are races where I'll call my mom. You know, it the cell coverage isn't always great, but like if I'm in one, she's um yeah, she receives phone calls from me in mid race sometimes uh <laughs> once i was racing in sweden and she i hadn't told anyone about this race because i thought it was going to be a disaster it was like snowy and cold um so i didn't even tell anyone i was going we just kind of hopped over there to do it and then my mom you know was texting me like hey i haven't heard from you in two days like are you okay is everything all right and i called her i was like hey mom I'm at mile 90 of this race. Uh, so <laughs> let's hang out while I like cruise it in, I guess, you know? And so she was like really happy to be there and talk to me. It made me feel a lot better too. So yeah, it just kind of depends on, you know, on cell coverage really. And I, I listen to a lot of, yeah, different media. I love, I love books. Um, I like a lot of like nonfiction stuff, uh, you know, positivity things, okay. stuff like that. It's really fun for me. And, and it, um, I listen to books about running while running. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why? Why would you listen to books about running while running? I like to be reminded that I'm not the only person going through this shit. <laughs> oh. It's really the best way for it, you know. Dude, that actually makes sense, man. Yeah, because that's, again, something, the only doubt or the only quit in me that I've dealt with when running is, again, it's a 5K, and I start to get angry at people I feel I'm athletically superior to, or 
like this 60 year old guy fucking blows by me and I try to keep pace with him. And then you just hit that point where I'm like, I can't, I just got beat by a 60 year old by a full three minutes and it burns me up. But for whatever reason, I can't push past that pain. I probably haven't trained enough, you know? And it's, it's one of those things where I hadn't thought about, it'd be interesting if you listen to some positive stuff, would you be like, oh man, he's feeling like I'm feeling and he's just, you know, he's just tougher, but you're as tough and you can tough it out. Right. Like that, that'd be an interesting technique. I hadn't thought about it. Yeah. Oh, I'm totally there for the fake it till you make it on like trying to enjoy these like really brutal runs, especially I'm a really bad climber and a lot of the races that I do are like really mountain based. So I, you know, I have like specific playlists for climbing that like get me in the zone, get me feeling good about it and just make me, I I tell myself that I'm a climber, even though I know that I'm not, um, you know, I tell myself I love these Hills and and it kind of works. No. Yeah, it does. It's worked so far. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, I think that's super important too, because I'll take a corner and all of a sudden the wind goes from your back to your face. And again, this is so in less comparison. I love how I'm putting myself in your class when I go for like my little four mile jogs, but no, please do. It's all running and it's all a challenge. Right. (laughs) Thank you. And I'll take the corner and all of a sudden you get like a 20 mile an hour wind in your face. Cause I'll, I'll go from like, um, some of my path that I jog on is very heavily wooded. So you get protected Mm -hmm. from the wind and then you hit a farm field, a cornfield, and all of a sudden it's just a wall and it's boom. And immediately my response is like, fuck. And I feel my head drop and I have to remind myself, it's not fuck. I'm like, fuck yeah. And like, I lift my neck up, you know, and you just embrace the pain or that struggle of this obstacle. And you have to, because if not, man, I've, I've gone where all of a sudden you lose like a full minute a mile pace and you look back and my Garmin or whatever. And I'm like, why, why did I do that? Dude, it was all my mindset. It was all my outlook. I remember, no, look at my steps or my heart rate or everything just drop. And you can pinpoint it to when I was like, fuck. And you just quit versus the fuck. Yeah. Let me get into this. Let me embrace this. It's going to make me better. And that's a very powerful mindset. The mindset can be so powerful and important to overcoming. Yeah. And in these long races, when it's like your body's already given up like six hours ago, it's all mindset. Yeah. <laughs> like that's all you've got left. God. And so I totally agree with you. You're right. And you know, if you, if you look at it, like put your arms out, love that wind, like be a plane, whatever, you know, right. have fun with it. Like you're going to feel very differently towards it than if you're like, Oh shit, this wind. Yeah, no, that's, I love it. Next. I'm just, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm a jog down. I jog down like um, highways. I'm just going to jog down and just start pretending to be an airplane next time. Making that's, motor that's sounds. That's definitely a Cassie move. So you can borrow <laughs> that one from my playbook. <laughs> I'm like, just wee, And then hopefully oh, yeah. I don't run into any bikers. We got a big biking population down here too. So like on the roads, you're dealing with cars, you're dealing with chicken trucks, you're dealing with dudes on bikes that are just trying to hit their PRs. And then you got joggers oh, and you're all fighting for like shoulder space and can be going in like different directions. You know, it, it can get awkward sometimes. Oh, I bet. Yeah, that's got to be tough. But see, like, look how committed you are to still go out there, even though you don't have the most ideal place to do it. Danger. It's because I feel alive dodging. It's how I stay alive. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't get to ask this. And I'm looking back at the notes. What was your ramp up like if to get to this hundred mile when you said 1030, 20, 
I'm assuming that's because you're, you know, I'm at this hundred mile, but do you go like one, three, two, then you go like four, 12, eight, and just a slow progression in that way? Um, kind of, but not necessarily. I would never, um, like we generally like, I have to run to stay sane. (laughs) So, uh, I would say I, I never have to drop below, like doing, being able to whip out like a 20 miler, um, pretty comfortably. So I'll do like, uh, for maybe the first weekend going into it, I might do like, a an eight, a 10 and a 12 or something, or eight, 12, 10, whatever the order might be. Um, or like, uh, I think this weekend we're probably going to do like a 10, 15 and maybe a 10, um, because we haven't really been like in distance training. So we're trying to ramp back up to it right now. Um, so it'll start like that, but then, uh, so our whole, whole cycle for getting up to a rate, a hundred mile race from just like average training, you know, kind of low mileage to actually getting ready for a hundred miler, we can squeeze it into six weeks. Oh, um, that quick. Wow. Now, is that but because of your body just being used to getting to that place? Or do you think six weeks yeah, if I you're committed? Probably so. I, I think it's because we have just kind of this baseline that we're used to of, right. you know, like, here we go again, body, like, <laughs> yeah. get in it, you know? Yeah, it's riding a bike. <laughs> yeah. And what would you suggest for someone who's interested in seeing if they could get there, but they were like you that first time when you'd run just a mile or two here and there? My recommendation for that would be sign up (laughs) because once you're in the system, then you're like, it's real. You have to do it. So Mm -hmm. like sign on for the challenge way before you know if you can do it or not. And then like, and then rise to it. Don't like wait till you feel like you're ready because you'll never feel ready. So just sign up and then try and find a community of people who want to do that same thing that you want and they will support you and give you all the knowledge and information that you need because that's the great thing about ultra runners is we like making more ultra runners. We're like the the fun peer pressure friends. Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. I mean, and it's, it, it's nice, man. It's, it gives you a healthy reason to wake up and to push past your discomfort. Yeah. And also like if you are where I was when I started ultra run or getting into ultra running and training for it, if you are like partying on Friday nights or Saturday nights, oh. that's going to go way down because right. you really can't get up for like a 5am run if you've been out till 2am partying. Yeah. That's, that's a good point too, man. It's the, the, just the health choices that come along with signing up for these active things. The, the, even yeah. immune benefits, right? Like just the healthy living, you're going to feel so much better. And it was it easy for you to kind of give up and transition into more of this ultra marathona and quit being the um, club girl? <laughs> I like how I just I made have, you a club girl. I, yeah. <laughs> I have one photo um, that my very good friend Karina took of me one day when we were, we had like a, I think a 30 mile Saturday and I had drank a lot of wine the night before um and this photo is of me laying on the ground looking really sad at the top of this hill after having like thrown up a bunch and she was like I'm taking this picture so you remember to never drink on the night before our long run ever again and I was like you're right (laughs) (laughs) 
So now uh, it was a forced transition. It was not super easy, but you only make that mistake maybe three times. And then <laughs> you learn. <laughs> I love it. Only three times. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's, um, I don't know. That's something. It's funny because I'll, I'll, you see articles about the alcohol consumption during COVID just going way up and the COVID-19, you know, where it's like I gained 19 pounds during COVID. And Oh, I, I maybe, yeah. right. I maybe get it if you're in somewhere like New York city, or I've spoken to people in who are going through the lockdown in London where they were like, yeah, you actually only get to leave your house once a day and you can get fined and ticketed and it's only for a certain amount of time. So I get it if people like that were almost restricted in their activity, but for people with space in more urban areas and especially rural, I, I don't get how the opportunity to get healthier is not there, was not there. And then just like, I, I understand the drinking more, right? Cause if you're home, you're bored, whatever. Sure. But at the same time, if you can spin it towards a more healthy mindset, more productive mindset, I'm surprised at least in American culture that it um, seems to have gone the other way. to so like lethar- lethargy <laughs> and complacency. Yeah. You know, I was very because shocked. Because it's like, what that. else do you have to do? At some point, you're you got to get bored of like what's available in your house, you know, right? and like at your fingertips. So like, Go out and run around in the woods. Why not? Yeah, no, no <laughs> it's a great time to try. Yeah, right. And it, it everyone was afforded that that time, man. It's I'll be very interested when people look back at the COVID and once we start getting more towards like that normal work week and time starts getting filled in. If it does, I I don't know. I don't know if I should hope it does, <laughs> but if it does, I wonder how much like regretful COVID posts will come out. Where people oh, yeah. reflect like on their things time. things I wish I did. Yeah, like, oh my God, when am I ever going to have two months where I have the excuse to get better at blank? Like for me, like honestly, me, I, I did the podcast and I'm like, all right, I'm kind of getting, I don't know if I'm good at this thing or whatnot, but I definitely have a understanding where I could explain to people if they wanted to start from scratch with no experience, hey man, th- these are some ideas, these are some concepts, blah, blah, blah. And like, mm-hmm. that's almost like how I channeled the time. And I wonder how many people are going to be like, damn, what, what did I, what did I improve at? What did I take away from this time that I was given or the opportunity I was given? Right. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, they won't have an answer for that. And, and once things do get back more to normal and more filled with, you know, other obligations, like people will realize like it was a missed opportunity. Yeah. I'm a, I don't know. I was, it, again, it's just, it's like a sociology thing. It makes me wish I was a college professor where I would have access to all sorts of like surveys to just kind of mm-hmm. get a better understanding of what separates those people. Right. And then like, what are some repercussions or consequences of that type of mindset? Right. Like, are they, is there a depression in there or something? I don't know. I, uh, I always find, I guess that's why I like the getting to know you concept and getting into people's mind frames. Cause it's interesting to understand what motivates and then the personalities that equal certain things in life, right? Like you being this explorer right. and this driver, I don't know if you can have some sort of other traits and still get to do the stuff you're doing, right? Like there are certain personality traits in you that allow you to live that lifestyle. And if people want that lifestyle, it's like, cool, then maybe make a conscious effort to adopt or adapt to these personality traits. Yeah. And even in myself, um, there are a lot of traits that if I hadn't let go of those, I would not be 
where I am and able to handle the lifestyle that I do have today. Because when I first started traveling full time, you know, I had been working two, sometimes three jobs and going to school full time and uh, in Hawaii when I lived there. And so once I moved to travel, I had to really make a conscious adjustment to ease it up, <laughs> ease it up a lot. And like, you know, not have to be in control of everything all the time. And it's okay if we're not going the right direction or the most optimal Google route, you know, to get to this place, like we'll probably eventually get there. What else do we have to do? Um, and that it took months for me to adjust to that difference. Uh, but now, now I can really kind of like roll with the flow. You're going to put me in jail for two days. Cool. I'll sit here, you know, <laughs> like it's like the previous version of myself would have really lost it in that situation. Right. Dude, that's crazy that you had that kind of mentality and you were living in Hawaii. I couldn't imagine what the mentality would have been had you been like growing up in New York city. Yeah, I, I didn't fit super well in with like, you know, the other people in Hawaii who were very chill. I was always more like very work focused. <laughs> like yeah. people, I would go into work sometimes and start like immediately talking about work things and, you know, getting started. And they'd be like, Cassie, how was your weekend? Right. How's your day going so far? And I'd be like, oh, okay. And like, Do you want a coffee before mm -hmm. we like start into this stuff? You know, I'm like, yeah, actually, thanks. <laughs> Sounds right. good. Yeah, and we were t talking about that a little bit earlier, that four-hour work week concept. It does sound good to like ease into it, but then I'm like, if I want to accomplish some other things, I'm not here to shoot the shit, man. What's my job? What's my right. task? Let me get it done so then I can be more like, if we want to be friends, that's cool. But And I've always been like that too. Like, I'm sorry, this is not friend time. This is not get to know you time. This is work time. So right. we don't need a relationship. Yes. But at the same time, it's really a dick way to be and it's very off-putting for most people like they need the social banter or whatever you know um i have found that to be true also <laughs> yeah right yeah. like it can be very conflicting with the remote home hey i get to log in i get to do my job we don't have these hallway water cooler talks but at the same time like most people there's a reason why they're so common because i think most people need them right it's relational right and that that yeah. is probably true so yeah. i'm you know, I'm a lot more, you know, I'm, I'm able to slow down more now and, and take the time to, you know, have conversations and really, you know, get to know people and like ask questions about their lives and stuff. But that's because I don't feel like I have pressing obligations all the time either, you know? Right. Um, so it, it's a trade-off really, you know? God, I, um, yeah. I, and it's funny cause you want to be like black, white, you want to be like right, left. You want, you want to say, this is what we should work is work or it's the efficiency or it's, it's the relationships and it's the humanistic approach. But I don't know if there, these are one of those things where I just don't think there is like a right way to do work. If that makes sense, like yeah. if it should just be all work or you kind of can feel bad about like, well, I'm getting paid to work. So should I take 15 minutes here and there to like chat with people and just like relax? I think like, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you're doing your job, I guess it doesn't really matter. The relational accomplishment, the capitalistic goal, metric driven society that I think a lot of us grow up in. Um, it's good to kind of fight that. Sorry. Yeah. And in Spain, I've been told that um, Americans live to work and Europeans work to live. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
because it's an identity thing. And I don't know, I don't want to get too philosophical with it because who am I? I don't have a philosophy degree, but it, it almost is like it, how many people, and th- this is where it became real apparent to me. It's like, when you meet a stranger, how quickly do they t- tell you, or do you ask, well, what do you do? And then the answer to that, what 90% of the time, 95, 100% of the time is they give their job. Right. right. Like they're not yeah, going to be like, true. I changed the world. Like, what, what do you mean by that? Or, you know, I, I make, I make the world a better place. What do you do? I, I think. And they're like, what? And we're like, no, no, no. I mean, what's your job? Oh, I blank. And like everyone always mm-hmm. goes default to the job, at least who I'm around. And it, it is, it's a huge identity thing. You do live to work and you set your schedule around working and it's a, I don't know, man, I don't know if it's fulfilling or not, but I don't think it is. At least for me, it's not. <laughs> and then you feel guilty. Like and you're you, right. Yeah. You don't appreciate the job that you have, you know, or that like you should be, you know, if you should be working harder than if, if this isn't your entire identity. Right. Yeah. It, it, Cause it can be that competitive thing. almost like racing. It's like, well, someone else is doing the job better. So what does that say about me? I'm not competitive. I need to be better. It's like, ah, maybe you could channel your competitiveness in uh, other areas that might be more fulfilling other than a paycheck. I don't know. Yeah, go run an ultra marathon. Hey. <laughs> no doubt. I wonder, man. I think I might try to ramp up. Well, we'll see. I hate running in the cold. I don't know how you do that in the rain and cold. Like December hits and I'm okay with putting on gloves and a hat. But dude, if it's raining and it's 5 a.m., I'm just, God, I'm weak. I'm, I'm, I'm a mentally weak person when it comes to persevering through the environment to run. Honestly, like I'll, I have allowed myself to call it in runs like that. I have a 10 minute rule. It's really useful for me. If I have a run that I'm supposed to be doing that day, if the weather is shit or if like I'm not feeling it for some reason or another, I have a 10 minute rule. So I have to get dressed, you know, in all my running gear, get out of the house. I can get 10 minutes into that run. And if after 10 minutes of running, I still want to quit, I turn around and go home. It doesn't matter if it was 20 miles, 30 miles planned for that day, 10 minute rule. I'm, I'm allowed to dip out. Um, and I think that that's, you know, showing a kindness to myself while still respecting my training and what needs to be done for these races. And it's, it's been useful for me because usually more often than not, I get out there 10 minutes in, I've warmed up, I feel okay about it. And like, I'm enjoying the experience and actually it ends up being a really nice day and a nice run, even when the weather is bad. So there's something you might adopt. Um, yeah, yeah, the the 10 minute rule. (laughs) No, because and I think then it doesn't become like a chore, right? It's not a burden. You're not gonna if you constantly do something you hate, then why would you do it and put yourself through it? So that's right. So it lets you have it, make it your choice, but it still forces you to get out there to actually make the active choice. You know, you it's easy to make the choice not to run when you're comfortable in your house and like wearing your pajamas, you know, right. and like tired. But once you're out there doing it, it's actually really easy to make the choice to continue. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a that's great. I love it. I love it. That's gonna be. I was talking to um a guy, Jeej, last night actually, who um might may inspire my midlife crisis first tattoo, and I think right I'm, I think I'm gonna get the ten minute rule tattooed in <laughs> what what do they speak in Bulgaria? Is it Bulgarian? Bulgarian. Bulgarian. Yeah, yeah. But it's uh, the Cyrillic alphabet, so it looks like Russian. Okay. Cyrillic alphabet. So yeah, 10 minute rule on my other wrist in the Cyrillic alphabet in Bulgarian. That's what I'm going to do. What's your first tattoo going to be? 
Um, Let's hear it. It's I don't know. I'm I'm such a punk. I probably won't get it. Although I will. Um, my idol is JJ Redick, and I don't know if you're familiar with basketball. He went to Duke. He's like the white boy shooter okay. that would piss everyone off. So he's in the NBA for years, and then one off season, he just gets like this full shoulder to elbow dark tattoo, and you're like. What what happened to JJ Redick when he turned 33 that he just gets this full arm tattoo? It looks great in a tank top, right? Like it's gangster. So he kind cool. of inspired yeah. me to be like, you know, I've never gotten a tattoo. Um, Jeej is a guy. He's actually a pretty good follow on Instagram. Um, a Captain Ahab, which is a beautiful story about this three foot, 43 pound wooden gnome that his grandfather oh. stole 70 years ago in the Navy with the intention of basically taking pictures with it around the world and then dropping it back off at the place with a note like a year later to just kind of mind fuck the people <laughs> to be like, there's my gnome. Well, it's turned into this thing where he's actually like a motivational speaker and he goes around to colleges and schools and he does bucket list things with this gnome. And it's this whole concept of go on adventures, have a purpose, meet people, be friendly. So what I want to do is I want to get like the gnome tattooed on my wrist where I have my watch. And like, mm -hmm. just as a reminder, when you check the time, kind of like a carpe diem sees the moment, stupid thing that if you wanted to could be hidden by wearing a watch. But if you don't have the watch, sure. you have Captain Ahab, the gnome on your wrist, reminding you like, go do some cool shit. I think I'm looking at this now. I just tried to pull it up on my phone. So he's, is he the yellow gnome yes. wearing a rain jacket? This yes. is like three foot tall wooden. Yes. That's a big thing to steal and carry around places. Dude, That's it, huge. That's so funny. He is training along with a guy, Dylan, actually Dylan, who is a guest on the pod from Hawaii, um, oh, cool. connected us and he's training. They were getting ready to go to the Himalayas to get to the base camp. So they were going to do an 80 mile hike with this thing. My goodness. Up Everest. Like it was on the bucket list. It got put off and now they're training again. They're hoping uh, this coming May to accomplish it. But yeah, That's dude, fantastic. Dude, he hitchhiked around, fuck, was it Costa Rica? No, Chile. He hitchhiked for like three months, the Patagonian trail with this thing and his friends. Like, wow, just that's like, really impressive because this is a big like dude, it's, piece it's of wood that's going to be heavy. It's 43 pounds and he carries it like a boombox, oh like an 80s boombox on. I'm like, dude, how are you, what are you doing with these? Like, picture me just with a boombox jamming out. <laughs> yeah. But, that's wonderful. Yeah, no, Good it, for Captain Ahab for getting to see the world. Dude, it's neat. And what he had said was um, the, the kind of a little bit of the story behind it. I won't get into it as long, but basically when his grandfather – and his shipmates stole this thing. They were so drunk when they got back to port, they couldn't find the place they stole it from. So they decided to keep it. And then once huh. a year, they would get together and just do a stupid adventure. And it started in 1943. Like this gnome has been on adventures since 1943. Wow. And what an incredible history for this one piece, it, you know? It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing story that he told. Yeah, I actually wound up, I think I got off recording with him last night like around 11 30 um yeah again just another great interesting person that you meet and you get to hear about like what they go through and it's inspiring just like your 10 minute rule is inspiring talking to jeej and hearing about his grandfather and like all the way till his grandfather was like 60 something they were getting together with his boys annually 
to either play cards, shoot the shit, or throw this gnome in a car and just drive somewhere they've never been just for the sake of saying, we're going to be together. We're going to, we're going to stay active. We're going to have this camaraderie. Um, was, and the gnome kind of like brought them together with that too, which is really exactly. cool. Exactly. Well, I mean, how many times does a particular music or an image take you back years? Right. And that gnome, they, right. and that's what his point was. He was like, dude, my grandfather could be whatever. And he was a super quiet, reserved guy. The fucking gnome comes out, his boys come over and they're 19 again. And, and like, they're, oh, you know, yeah. getting ready to go to war on this ship. And they have this thing as this, uh, come like this ice, breaker this way to mentally decompress from you're on a ship and you're going to go battle hopefully it does not get blown up right like you need those stress relievers and that's what it symbolized to them and that's what it symbolizes to jeej and he's 37 now he got the gnome when he's 19 he's had the gnome 20 years himself and it's becoming this thing wow. yeah no, does, it, did his grandpa know that he he was going to carry on the gnome tradition it got handed to him so his grandfather um when Oh, I want to try to remember it exactly. Basically, after 50 years with the gnome, the group decided to hand it down to Jeej and they would do a, they, the gnome would be involved in card games. And I forget the name of the card game. Wits, it might be. I'm trying to flip through. Basically, it's it's almost like a game of bullshit where it's not like poker where it's a set winner. You just kind of screw around with each other in some way. I haven't looked up the rules. But the pot got up to like a couple thousand dollars. So they handed him, Captain Ahab, they handed him the the money from the card game. And that was going to be their last card game. And they say, you're ready to take Ahab on his next adventure. Wow. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. And then from there, the money, he used the money with his friends to go on adventures. Um, and the first adventure that he told um, was to go see the world's largest um, knit ball in Kansas. And there's a special reason for that. I guess I'll do like the shameless plug. If anyone's listening at this point, check out Gigi's episode. It'll be posted very close to when yours is. And um, it, it's, it, 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 if it catches you in the right moment, you'll want to cry, but you'll definitely laugh as well as to why that was the first adventure with Captain Ahab who wants to be a pirate. <laughs> it's just, it was awesome. It was an awesome story. So yeah, that's my long way of saying if I ever get a first tattoo, it's going to be that yellow Ahab wooden gnome. <laughs> oh good well i can't wait to hear that podcast i'm definitely gonna listen to that episode too yeah, that yeah. sounds great it's and it's funny man because like this running the longer i get into distances the more i've gotten into listening to pie i always did music because i like the rhythm it kept me in but the mm-hmm. podcast is kind of a nice way when you're not trying to like pr and you just want to fall into that natural rhythm and let your mind go a two hour podcast yes. a three hour podcast man it's a great thing joe rogan's podcast is great to go for a long jog to you know it really is that sounds awesome. God, I can't believe you got me talking that much about me. I always try to avoid that. Although I guess I get on tangents every here and there. Um, I, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to derail. No, 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 no. I, it was very interesting to me. Yeah, right? No, I, 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 I assume it's fine. Like, I, it's my podcast. I guess I would get to make the rules, right? <laughs> there you go. That um, is the truth. I'm curious, and we haven't gotten into it, which was the initial contact purpose. And I have not seen your episode, believe it or not, because oh, okay. I, what I kind of like to do is get the insights and then I search for them on demand and try to watch it and then like tell the little stories about what I learn about the episode. Um, I'm wondering when you went on Naked and Afraid, did you have the 10 minute rule there? 
<laughs> where you're like 10 minutes into naked and afraid. If I'm not enjoying it, I'm allowing myself to quit. <laughs> God, I wish I had. No, the 10 minute rule was invented after that, <laughs> after <laughs> naked and afraid. But um, no, I went into naked and afraid with the mindset that this is a survival test. It's a really controlled and semi-safe way to test my ability to survive in one of these situations, which is something that you almost never get to experience, you know, being put into a true survival test right. where you actually don't risk dying from it. So, um, yeah, no, in my opinion, like the way I went into it was with the mindset that tapping out is dying. So mm. I'm saying this killed me to tap. So I, I went into it with, you know, the expectation it was going to be quite painful and I was ready to just, suffer through whatever that would be. And I know you had said that in the middle of going from your, to your first ultra marathon, the naked and afraid came up. Did you apply for it like a year, six months prior? Did you start becoming active and you're like, Hey man, this is something that I just want to see if it happens. What went into you trying to get on the show? Um, so one day I was studying for finals. I was in grad school at the time. And, um, I was, you know, studying for finals and I called my mom and I was like, mom, you know, I hate finals. This sucks. Like I want to run away and live in the woods. And she's <laughs> like, you know, there's a show on the discovery channel where people do that. You should try and be on it. I was like, that's hilarious, but a great way to waste three hours. So <laughs> I like had never seen the show. I looked up a couple of YouTube videos, saw some clips of it. I was like, yeah, that seems great. I can do that. Put together like a little, like a, a video, uh, it was just like some pictures with a voiceover, um, like introducing myself and saying, you know, why I thought I was a good candidate for the show. I submitted my application. I literally just Googled online, like how to apply for Naked and Afraid. Right. And it so happened that they were like accepting applications at the time. And I submitted it and I was like, that was fun. What an interesting way to like take my mind off of school for a little while. And um, then I actually went and drove to the running store because I needed to pick up some shoes. And it was less than an hour after I submitted my application, I got a call from like a California number oh, shit. and I answered and it was the producers of the show. And they were like, Hey, are you serious? Cause we just saw your application come through. We want to like move forward in this interview process with you. And I was like, that oh, quick. Dang, okay. Dude, how, <laughs> how in the hell did you market yourself to get called that quick? Oh my gosh. How did Apparently, you sell yourself? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I would say I was like barely qualified to be on that show. So I think maybe they just don't have like a whole lot of girls um, for the show or I, I honestly don't know. Um, Cause mostly I talked about like how I'm, you know, getting into ultra running and like, I like to spend time in nature. I find myself really at home, like in the wilderness. Um, I grew up in rural Arkansas, spent a lot of time outside as a kid, like, pretty much no formal training and survival. Oh, uh, so honestly, they thought you were going to, they did think you were going to die. They were like, here's the perfect sure, sap. Like, and then to kick it off, yeah. did you have, I've seen a couple of your pictures. You had blonde hair now. Did you have blonde hair then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've always had blonde hair. Um, I, I was born with it, even though I was also born with super black eyebrows. I <laughs> just like have a mismatch look. I, uh, I, I but didn't, yeah, so I didn't want to, I didn't want to bring it up, but thank you for clarifying because that would have been a follow-up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I've been really studying like your look and I think you're lying. Yeah. No, no but, I got – so one of the things on the show was that my partner Greg was like, 
really against blonde girls. So that's why they thought uh, it'd be fun to put us together. Thanks. So, well, <laughs> and, no, um, that's, what, that's exactly what I was thinking that goes in. Cause I always wonder if the producers have, it's like a jigsaw puzzle where they want to kind of make a narrative, even though the narrative's like surviving, they do try to give you the easy persona for someone viewing to attach to. So if you look at you, you're like, oh, blonde girl who's into running, like who can we put her with that will either add drama or help a storyline? So it, that's hilarious that the blonde thing did get used because you got partnered with a guy who Absolutely. is anti-blonde. Because that's exactly, when you look yes. at your picture, you're like, oh, blonde. And not to be whatever, I'm not trying to like sexualize it or something, but it's very stereotypical like to be stereotypical. Yeah, yeah. to be like blonde. Oh, she's probably ditzy. She's stupid. She's all about fun. You know, she looks, she's, she's attractive. Boom. Great on the screen. And let's watch her deteriorate and die <laughs> out in nature. Yeah, like you know? let's kill her. Right exactly. out here. It's going to be <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, no. And like, so that's the thing. He was like, I don't, I've never met one blonde girl that's not, that cares about anything other than maybe their shoes and blah, blah, blah. Oh. Like was really talking smack about blonde people. Wow. So it was funny. Then they put me out there with him, of course. And people on like the Discovery Channel, like Facebook page or whatever, were like, she's not even blonde. Look at her dark eyebrows. <laughs> and then some like kind person that I guess I went to school with was like, actually, I went to school with her. Like she's had that color of hair and those eyebrows since like second grade. So, and I was like, thank you for standing up for me. <laughs> not that it really matters, but it was funny to me. Right. Where, where did you guys get sent? Canada. So they were like, you know, what's going to be really fun for someone who lives in Hawaii. Cold. Oh man. So they really did try to just go anti and flip it on you. Oh, they didn't give us a fire starter. Like we had rope. We had to make our own fire. It took, six days sorry not to spoiler alert oh, i'm no. watching the show my bad no no, no um, it's like, fine don't worry about spoiling it for me it dude was I'm, i love so it so bad god and so you we had, are not like doing well <laughs> you have no like survival skills so was greg the one that like is coming to it with those primitive survival skills so i have like um I have stick it out skills and I have some like, um, you know, like hunting gathering skills. I'm like, okay with herbs and stuff and decent with like plants um, because I have a background in, in marine biology. So I did have a lot of like general biology and science background. Okay. Um, so that was helpful for it actually. But um, you know, so I, I handled all the, the edible things, anything we ate, I caught it, gathered it, cooked it, made it into food. Um, but, uh, yeah, so Greg was coming to it and, and they knew going into it that I didn't know how to, I, I'm really crap with fire making. I'm also, I'm okay at like building shelters and stuff, you know, like I feel like most people do that as a kid and like yeah. you can get decent at it. You know, you put a little thought into it and like, okay, you can build a shelter. Right. Um, but for like, yeah, so the fire was really the main issue for us and, uh, Greg convinced them that he was like the master of fires and oh, I love when they was, get humbled. I love that's our favorite part. The 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 humbling of the I dominate nature guy. Yeah. So <laughs> they gave me that guy. <laughs> um and that was great. <laughs> Cause oh man, and he was also not just like talk smack because like we ended up working well together and like we were a decent team. But he just like um 
you know, has that like typical masculinity, like personality type where it had, he had to have like, he had to be able to try the things that he wanted. So there was a day whenever we hiked like three miles upstream because he was convinced we were going to find the water source. I'm like, really? You think this entire river comes from a spring near here? Cool. Whatever you say, let's not worry about making fire today. That's not a priority. You know, like, things like that had to just happen. Uh, there are some, like, there's a little bit in the thing where I'm like sassy about where we built our first shelter because I disagreed with where we should build it. And then um, it ended up, we tore it down and built a new one someplace else. Uh, I won't tell you why I'll let you see it, but it's like, um, no, it's fine. But there is a point where I'm like, so today we're moving our shelter. <laughs> like that was the whole comment because <laughs> nothing more needed to be said it was just it's one of those things eventually he did you know gain respect for me and like we worked more as a team but starting off it was a lot more of like how things were going to be done how he expected things to be done and then I just was like it's easier to go along and then to fight yeah. and that's kind of my general like way I approach stuff I, I pick my battles and uh, and so for those I was like that's fine I can wait this out three or four days it'll probably be the way I anticipated it so that, that happened with a lot of stuff dude I love so in, in my mind again actually let me ask this how long ago were you on uh it was like uh 2015 I think when oh they filmed and then I think it aired in early 2016 got you so you man five years that's crazy with Greg no fire for six days I'm picturing him looking down at you because stereotypical blonde and then you guys having to like actually huddle together to stay warm, like using body heat in order to deal with Canadian cold. Well, the other fun thing was that Greg had just gotten married before he went on that show and his brand new wife totally disagreed with him being on it. So there were a lot of rules against that too. He was like, my wife has all these rules for us. You need to wear clothes. I'm like making you a skirt and stuff. And I was like, <laughs> I was kind of out here like to be naked for three weeks. So cool. Thanks. But whatever. <laughs> and like, um, yeah. So there were like, we could sit back to back to huddle and stuff, but we had to be like really, you know, and I wanted to be respectful of her and I didn't want to do anything obviously that would make her feel weird or bad. And at the time, like I was single, I could see that like looking really like questionable. Right. Greg and I would have never been a match. So that's okay. You know, um, <laughs> I think that's that there's nothing to worry about at all there, but like, it was interesting that, um, you know, we had that additional like social construct to worry about in a freaking survival situation that like shouldn't have even been on the radar, but because yeah. this wasn't real life or death, like it had to be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause it's going to get posted. That's so true. Yeah, Could you imagine yeah. if like the plane had crashed and you're actually out there and then someone was like, you know what? Like if there were no cameras there, Greg's not saying that. Right. Greg's like, dude, we're coming. Let me tell you. Yeah. Well, here's an honest truth about that situation. If the plane had crashed us right there, I would have swam my ass across that lake and gone to a, a what's that place that sells the donuts? Uh, Tim Hortons. I could have been in a Tim Hortons in like four hours. I'm an ultra runner. <laughs> like, don't think I, like I had to actively choose to stay there. And there were nights when I knew that like I could swim across the lake, follow a road and probably even hitchhike into a town and like get food. 
because I looked rough enough. Someone would have probably given it to me and gotten back <laughs> and no one would have known. And I had to like choose not to cheat. That's a, <laughs> so wow. like that was added to it as well. That was like a really weird mental challenge on top of everything else. Yeah. Cause it's not like when you typically see it, like if you think of naked and afraid, I think most people think like Africa. And you're just in the middle right. of this like weird safari desert and it's super desolate and you're driving for hours and hours to get somewhere. And I, I had no idea, man. So yeah, Canada, you got a lake and then you got opportunity because there, there are no... Well, we were, we were in the middle of nowhere. It was probably like an hour or so drive from where I remember seeing a town, but it's like there's a road, you know, yeah. like no, yeah, exactly. eventually down that road, there is food. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. There's a reason the road got built. A hundred miles isn't going to scare me. Like I can hike out of here in three days yeah. if it were a real survival situation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But the thing was like, it was a game and right. I had to remember that and not cheat. <laughs> God. Um, and how did the fire come about? The sticks rubbing together? technique with a little like rope for the twine it almost looks like a um what what kind of saw yeah is that? pretty much that okay it's so that's a bow drill i think bow that drill. you're thinking about yes. and what we did was really similar but it's called a, a partner drill so instead of one person having the bow it's like one person held the the center stick down the spindle that's the one that spins um and then the other person turns the rope so it can go even faster you know okay and when the fire, when you get those embers and whatever you're blowing, when you finally get the fire, was Greg able, is that like a hug moment or Greg was like, you know what? I'm really restrained to just a high five at this point. Oh, you know what? Honestly, I don't remember. It was probably a high five and maybe tears. Yeah, right? That's what I'm like, I don't even know if like you are even there with the other person in that moment as much as you're just like in your own head, you know, and grateful to not be cold. And we did, uh, the first time we got fire, we got like a spark and a small flame. And then Greg was too tired to do it again that night. And we had another night of cold and didn't get fired till the next day. Stop, dude. So you guys had it and then you just couldn't, you just didn't do it again. It went out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And so instead of like me, I'm like, let's just try this literally all night till we get fire. The decision was, to take another night of cold and like wait dude that's like you're not eating very much it's not like you're getting stronger you know but i think it was more of the frustration of it that you know he didn't want to like continue that yeah and again dude if you're coming in as the and not to talk smack but i guess i'm talking a little bit of i'm speculating smack i'm not talking smack i'm speculating smack but the mentality of if that's like your thing and you see it on the show all the time the again, I can dominate nature guy. If you feel like a failure, right? Like men- mentally, you just feel like you're not living up to your identity. And that really messes with people. So six days of that, and you don't have distractions, and you're just reminded of the failure, that would be very tough to deal with. If you're not as strong as my guest today on the Getting to Know You podcast, because she's about oh, that life. <laughs> well, it's, it's tough with that because you're having to see someone's ego crumble. And then also I need to be there to support him enough because I don't need him to leave. I have literally no other way to make fire. I'm dependent on him. Um, so like I'm, I'm having to see that. That's a great point. Like, you know, make like tether the way that I'm responding in such a way that it's going to build him up rather than tear him down more because 
because I need him too. You know, I need him to come through on this. This is kind of what he's like, this is his big role, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then like day eight, now you just start poking him and you'd be like, you know, <laughs> I could have got that fire done in two days. I'm just saying. And you just make those little comments as you're walking by or going like, huh, you know, that fire thing didn't really seem too hard. Are you still upset about that? And you just keep bringing it up and then he taps out and then you're like, finally, peace and quiet. <laughs> Honestly, it is so much better to have a partner out there. I have so much respect for people who did it on their own because even if you totally don't get along with your partner, it is so much nicer to just know that there's another human in that forest with you than to be alone right. with bears and stuff. You know, it's like, uh, no, on the way out, on the way to the pickup point, the very last day, um, there was like a little bit of smack talking, not nothing bad, but it yeah. was like, um, my my partner was like ready he was done they like wanted us to have this epic hike out which was supposed to be like short ish and we were supposed to be done by noon and then like 5 p.m rolls around and we're still out there hiking after <laughs> <laughs> not eating for three weeks and stuff we still had no food and um so you know he's like this is bs like we did the challenge we're done i'm leaving and they were like, Cassie, tell him to stop being such a little bitch. And I was like, yeah, right. He's got the knife. I'm not saying shit. <laughs> like, it was really funny. That's awesome. Yeah, they told him, they ended up telling him that, like, you're welcome to tap out now and we'll take you out on a stretcher. But Cassie's finishing this, clearly. And I was like. Oh, yeah, that's the yep. dig right there. That, that'll that get that fire going. No doubt. That's the Kindle yeah. you need. Oh, man. Dude, so you. You didn't even like get a fish or anything like that? It was just herbs and leaves, plants for the three no, weeks? No, so we had like frogs every day. So I, I mostly oh. could, I'm apparently really good at catching frogs by hand. I'm, I've done like hen fishing in the past too. It's called noodling. I'm southern. So uh, where you like stick your hand into like holes in the riverbank and like oh. a fish bites it and you pull it out. So I had done some more of that, like in training for, you know, once I knew I was going to be on the show, just to kind of like prepare and come up with different really primitive ways to to catch food. Um, so I set some traps. They were shit. I'm a terrible trapper, it turns <laughs> out. <laughs> um, my traps never worked, but I could like, um, you know, I, I could catch things with my hands. So we had frogs every day, frogs and berries. And then um, we had a couple of snakes. Um just small stuff like that. I did try to catch fish, but I, it didn't go very well. The thing was, it was so cold. It was really hard to be like deep in the water. Okay. I think if I, if it had been warmer, I could have spent more time like in the water and I probably would have been decent at catching fish and stuff there and setting up like fish traps would have been okay. Um, and also there were a lot of regulations. We didn't have hunting licenses for Canada, so we couldn't hunt any mammals except for like um, oh. the squirrels and chipmunks so i wasn't like i could have gone out like we were right near a beaver dam i probably could have gone out and trapped a beaver but i wasn't allowed to gotcha. um so even though it was like a pseudo survival situation we still had to also you know be within the confines so it got to a point where we were like leaving the little dead carcasses of frogs right outside our tent we're like coyotes attack us because we could kill things if they attacked us so we kind of like started <laughs> being bait and we're like prepared to like have a fight so that we could actually eat something bigger but it never happened dude what was your plan to kill a coyote 
<laughs> I had a gotta... sharp stick. Yeah, we had two <laughs> sharp sticks. We figured, you know what? These and like maybe we grab a rock or something. It's going to be really super bloody and horrible. But like, sorry, you know, we were really hungry. <laughs> yeah that was and i'm a vegetarian that's what's so yeah dude i was that was gonna literally be the next thing i was thinking i'm like are you a vegetarian at this time or did this experience turn you into the vegetarian you are now yeah so i was not a vegetarian at that time but uh i became that more as i got more into running Um, however like i still didn't like bludgeoning things to death you know (laughs) i'm like I don't know. Um, when I look at it and people ask me about the situation, and even if I were to do something like that again, I would probably eat animals during that experience because it's like, yeah, well, I don't eat people in everyday life either. But like, if I were part of the Donner Party, I can't promise you I wouldn't have, you know, like, oh, same mindset, you know, when you're starving and like, in a survival situation, your your morals change quite a bit. Right. Oh, my God. So I got to tell you this, because I guess shout out. It freaked me out. Um, Scott, I think his episode might get posted in two weeks. He's a mm-hmm. podcaster and he hears stories. One person he had okay. on had his foot amputated. Oof. Guess what that person did with their foot? Oh my God. Did they eat it? Yes. No. With why? their friends. Just to. Oh no. Just to be the person that at a party when you say, you know, I've eaten frogs and snakes and I was on Naked and Afraid, he can say, well, you that know, guy's like, I ate my foot. You know what I've eaten? Yes. <gasps> Dude, he told me that story and we got into this thing of like, would you, right? Like it, meat to meat is like a delicacy. And I had not like thought about it in that way because I think he was actually, I believe Scott might be a vegan. And he's, his thing is like consent. The animal does not give consent for you to slaughter it. So he feels kind of wrong about that, right? What, and I don't know if plants give okay. you consent, whatever. I think I'm remembering this right. If I'm not, I apologize. But then the consent of, could you choose to eat your own meat, your own flesh? And like, what would that taste like? Dude, he hit me with that man ate his foot. I'm like, that can't be real. And it was, it was real. Oh my goodness. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard of someone eating. Because like, wow, I don't even know where to stand on that. Right. Well, like think about like, you know, um, cannibals or like even Hannibal Lecter, right? So if you have surgery, Mm -hmm. that kidney, that liver, that, that piece of you is you. They don't have a right to take you. You have a right to have you. So the dude's getting this surgery and is like, so what happens to the foot afterwards? They're like, I don't know. Do you want it? Like, yeah. What? You want your foot? Yeah, I want my foot. Save it for me. <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> I forget what the organ was, but we were like making fun of like, if you had your kidney removed, could you then put it in like a lava lamp and like just have parts of you floating and something like, and he was like, actually, yeah, <laughs> you, you, you know what could happen? I've actually had someone on that had um their foot removed and kept it. And I was like, what? Yes. Wow. That's incredible. It's a what a strange thing to do. Like, how how do you get there in conversation? Like the night before, the week (laughs) before, right? You're like, you know, fellas, because he's sitting around. It's like a frat boy style thing. It's like, you know, fellas, when I get my foot removed, how crazy would it be if I ate some? Would y'all want to have an eating party? And like, that's what they did, man. They had a foot eating party when he got back with his friends. 
I hope his foot wasn't like necrosed or something. That's why they had to remove it. <laughs> I can't remember. I'm sure it's in there. I can't remember why the foot got removed. Like it was like, like whatever you got Mercer, you got the gout or something or like frostbite. You're like, it's a waste. I, I don't think it was something weird like that. I, I just, again, dude lost his foot and ate. I was like, fuck me. I don't know if I want to be that guy. Wow. That's something. It is. That's, yeah. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> yeah, right? I, like, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. It, it, but it, I don't know. I don't even know if it's an interesting conversation to have, but it is one of those things. Like I would imagine when you get in those survival modes, you have these morals, right? You have these rules. A lot like what Greg was saying about, you know, we can't snuggle. We can go back to back. That's like my moral constraint, my societal mm-hmm. constraint. But then when you remove society, you really wonder how primitive can we get? How primal are we without law that's written? Yes, agreed. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of a question for each individual person, you know, and that's not to take this back to ultras, but that's really something that I appreciate in running these really long races is you see your truest self. You're not putting on a show for anybody. You're not pretending to be nice for anybody. Like at the late stages of these races, it's, you know, it's three in the morning. You haven't slept. You're like exhausted all that's left is is just pure you. And I think that that's something really nice to get to see because it's right. something we almost never see in regular society and without putting ourselves through some insane challenge like that. <laughs> and the true you has absolutely no problem when you're hungry enough poking another living creature and trying to bash its brain in apparently. So that's nice that I know that about nope. you. <laughs> Yeah, that's me. So, you know, two and a half weeks of no food. Anything is on the menu, just about. (laughs) (laughs) What a a strange caveat. But it's so ingenious to be like, you know, what's the loophole? Okay, if they attack us, we're not going to get deported. So we're straight. Let's let's exactly. That's awesome. And you're like, all right, I'm bait. Let's do this. (laughs) And we still never got attacked. So I mean, credit to the animals, I guess. Like, they didn't want to eat us as badly as we wanted to eat them. Yeah. I, well, like, I wonder how enticing frog carcasses and snake carcass are to coyotes. Like, would they care? Or I don't were you, know. Were you thinking it was, like, more about your smell that maybe they would just, like, catch a whiff of you as a person and think, oh, we can attack? Well, they had been cooked. So I thought maybe it was, like, the, the cooked skin smell, you know, how, uh, like, okay. cooked things kind of smell better. Um, so I was hoping just kind of having that around <laughs> the general area would draw some things in. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. I'm surprised too. Cause we I'm, could hear things walking around outside a lot, but they never like tried to get in and grab us. Gotcha. And was that freaky for you? Cause I know sometimes in like Africa, again, they see the hyenas or whatever and like they get startled, like they get shook shook. Yeah. Oh, it was definitely scary for me. Um, but I didn't find out until after the show had finished filming, um, at the wrap party. So I would, you know, be in the shelter, it'd be nighttime and I would hear something walking around. I'd say, Hey, Greg, do you hear that? You know, I hear something walking and he'd, he'd be like, Oh yeah, no, it's the, it's the patrol. Like I heard him talking a second ago. Like, it's just those guys. They're just checking on the cameras or something. I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. 
And then afterwards at the rap party, Greg was like, yeah, that was pretty much never the people. It was always definitely animals. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, we would hear you say that over the microphone and always be like over here at the safety camp thinking like, no, it's not us. I was like, wow, oh, you guys all suck. <laughs> <laughs> and was he doing that like to comfort you or was he doing that because he was just lazy? He's like, man, I don't feel like protecting. I think he was doing it to comfort me, but I would have preferred to know um, so that I could have been like more prepared, maybe. I don't, I don't know. Honestly, like it, it was, I guess it really, really was comforting because then I didn't worry right. and nothing ended up happening. So that's fine. But it would have been nice to kind of at least be prepared. Yeah. Like, I guess on ready or like you're going to sit there and just have the um, psychotic look in your eye. You're sharpening your stick. You're like giving yourself a pep talk. Is that what ready would be? Yeah. I mean, just having like uh, making sure that any tools that I would need to defend myself are within reach versus like laying down next to the fire and being kind of relaxed, you know? Yeah. Right. Like you're again, just inviting the attack. (laughs) right a bunch of slabs of bacon by the fire warming up for you coyote come get them yeah (laughs) it's fine exactly i was really lean bacon at the time though i don't know i lost a bunch of weight on there yeah dude that's always amazing how much like and i've never fasted i think i maybe skip a meal not intentionally it just happens and that's the closest i've come to fasting so with sleep Mm -hmm. and if i skip breakfast i think I might've gone 16 to 18 hours without eating. And I go nuts, dude. Like my stomach's gurgling. I'm irritable as fuck. Like it's, I'm a completely different person and I become obsessed with eating something. I I can't get over how people lose 20 pounds, 30 pounds on this show. It really just talks to me about like how much excess, excess weight we have on our body. And it's, we give into that urge probably way too quick. Yeah, definitely. And like, so for us, we were totally obsessed with food the whole time. In the evenings, we would just talk about all the things we we're going to eat and make when we got off of there. And that may be like, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, like you might want to just ignore it, but it was somehow comforting right. to like, just talk about like, oh yeah, I'm going to have pizza with all this cheese. It's going to be amazing. You know, and like, what's your favorite recipes that your wife makes? Like, yeah. So we, uh, we just really leaned into this discomfort of it all and like, it was okay, you know? And what was interesting is like, sometimes it'd be so cold and raining out. And like, we thought it was going to snow a few times. Um, to be really super cold and just really painful to go outside. Then we would just make a group decision. Like we're not going to eat today because it's too cold to go out and get food. How much, um, weight did you lose? I lost like 20 pounds. But I put on about 10 uh, in preparation. So I only ended up being down about 10 pounds for my normal weight. But I was also, like I said, in training for that race, the 100 miler that I ran was only a month after filming finished. So, um, so I was, I didn't have a ton to lose. And then like, once I found out I was going to be on the show, I was eating like an entire pack of bacon or a whole pan of brownies for like the two weeks leading up to it. So I put on 10 pounds and then I I lost 20. So I was only about 10 pounds down from my normal weight. And I don't know if this applies to you or not. And it's a little stereotypical, not about being a blonde, but being a female and how much body image wise mentally, is it messing with you? Are you having to like say it's okay that I'm gaining weight or you just don't have that personality where you're like, oh my God, look at my thighs kind of a thing. No, I, I 
did have trouble with it. Um, it was over such a short period of time that it ended up not being much of an issue. And it's easy for me to do something like that knowing that there's an end goal and a reason gotcha. um, versus just like, this is creeping on. It was like, this is intentional. This is why I'm doing it. Okay. So for me, it made sense in that situation. And then I also wonder about the reverse because like after you see yourself the dirt wise, like looking in a mirror for the first time, when you get to see what you actually look like or whatever, like reflect into a camera, checking out your own body image, does it really like screw with you last in your mind? Like, oh my God, I can't believe I was that. Or am I thinking about that a weird way, weird and wrong? Well, I, I absolutely remember the first time we saw ourselves afterwards, we stopped to get coffee on the way out. So the day you actually get out of this challenge, you're riding such an endorphin high. It's like more endorphin high than I've ever been from any race. It was such a long drawn out experience, just so gratifying to finish it that, um, I was just living my best life. I was so happy. <laughs> I was like, Oh my God, chairs, blankets. Like this is the best of everything. I have so many things in the world. Like, so we stopped to get coffee, which was incredible. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> we saw, we got out of the car while the guy who was like driving us went in to get coffee. And we just looked at ourselves in the window of a shop on the street that was closed. And we were, filthy but we'd put our clothes back on by that point you know but we'd put the clothes on that we'd come in in and they didn't fit the same like putting boots on after three weeks of being barefoot felt so foreign and weird and like I was walking around like when you put shoes on a dog like it was ridiculous <laughs> and like I couldn't step correctly on my feet and you wouldn't think that you would lose it so quickly but it was so strange to be in clothes again and just looking at myself we were just standing in front of this window touching our filthy faces and like our bodies we couldn't your self-image doesn't match what you see in the mirror and like when I got back to the hotel room I took so many pictures I was like this is amazing I had frostbite <laughs> on my legs like my legs had these like weird um like spiderweb patterns on them from where the capillaries had like frozen on the ground from sleeping on the cold oh my gosh and like yeah I looked like a zombie when I went back home my friends were like you look like you're gonna eat my brains <laughs> like, <laughs> it was crazy but it's like I was so happy at having gone through the experience. I just really respected what my body showed that I was able to withstand because it was kind of a beautiful thing to be able to go through all of that. You, you see it in you, you know, physically it's, it's really obvious. And, and to know that you withstood all of that is, is actually like, it's something to be proud of. I think. Yeah. God, like what empowering, just that internal motivation if you ever need to reach for it, right? And that, and I like yeah. what you said because it, it's something, again, I'm, I'm sure guys, I, I shouldn't say I'm sure guys, everyone I believe deals with like image issues at some point, right? Like you have to embrace what you are. You have to embrace the way you look. You got to find body beauty or whatever the saying is. And I've always wondered about the people on Naked and Afraid when they, when they see themselves in a very – decrepit's the wrong word in a very foreign way that they've they'll most likely never see themselves again i almost wonder like does that scar or mess with them and i love how you're like not dude i embraced it and i'm like god look at what i've overcome like it's a it's a great yeah. way to use it you know well thanks yeah i just there was really a beauty to it not like a physical like wow i'm attracted to that but like 
holy shit, man, like, that's a lot, what a change, you know, and, like, to withstand that, and, and to really see it laid out, like, on your skin, and on yourself, that you went through that, it's, it's validating, really. Yeah, man. Is there, did you have a big takeaway, or a big experience that you went through on the show? I know you've said a bunch, but I, I, again, I haven't seen the episode, so I don't know what I don't know. As far as like, oh man, day five, we had a chance for blank and, or this was kind of a funny thing that happened. Anything that I hadn't heard that I should look forward to? Um, I can't remember what was shown on the show. I've watched it like once, maybe twice, um, <laughs> because it's hard to watch having been there. Um, Is it really? But yeah. And you know, it's and because you make podcasts, you probably are really familiar with this hearing your own voice and like hearing the way you say things when you listen back to it. Are you like, Oh, I should have done that differently sometimes or no. Oh no. I'm a complete narcissist. Have- All I am. I'm like, God, okay, you're good, amazing. Good. You're the best. And actually this might be the clip I play. Just me telling me how <laughs> awesome I am. No, I am. I'm much like you. I, I get annoyed at how I ask questions. I start to notice, um, repetitive ways and sayings that I have, the, the draws, the, um, I'll listen. I'll be like, dude, the guest was taught. And I've, I think I've done it to you probably a couple of times where like, you're saying something, I feel like you're going some way. And then I just ask some stupid ass question. And I think back, Oh dude, really? You should have gotten more into whatever the topic was. So yes, I do the same thing. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you feel that way, but yeah, I'm exactly <laughs> like that where I'm like, oh, I cannot watch myself say this shit again. <laughs> like, that's great that it's out there as that, but like, poof, you know, and, and I can totally say and respect that Discovery Channel was kind to me. I know that they can spin things in any way, you know, when they make shows like this because yeah. they have so much content to include. So, you know, they did make me look pretty good in the show. I felt great about the way I was portrayed. I was grateful for that. Um, but I hate watching myself just like out there talking for, you know, 45 minutes straight on the show. Um, so that's also part of why I just haven't really seen it very many times. Um, I'm interested. One of the things I, oh, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. And I cut you off again. And I don't know if it's interesting. What's hard about when you were saying things like you, you don't like the fact that it was, and again, I haven't seen it like you're too negative. You're too whiny. Or is it literally just like the way your voice sounds? You're like, that's weird. Oh no, it's a hundred percent just my voice. Like I cannot stand to listen to myself talk. <laughs> oh, it's that all the way. Like I, I went into it looking at it kind of like a game. So I knew that things can be twisted however you want. So I refused to say things in a way that could be taken out of context and make me sound like an asshole mostly. Right. Um, so like when I first got on the show, um, they were like, describe your partner to us. And I was like, oh, well, he seems like a nice guy, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, okay, well, we want to want you to comment on his appearance. So we want you to say, like, Greg looks blank and just talk about what he looks like. And I was like, because Greg is like a a big guy, you know, like a a hefty dude coming out there. And so I knew that they were trying to get me to, like, call him fat, and I was absolutely not going to play that game. So I said – my partner Greg looks warm <laughs> and that actually made the video like made the show. And I got like made fun of like teased about it a lot because it's really obvious that like, I was just refusing to call him fat, you yeah. know, you should have just been like, you know what? He's big, he's bold and he's beautiful. And I can't wait to see. <laughs> and then like, you do like a wink yeah. and a kiss 
to like for his wife just to see oh man yeah that woman would have been after me oh <laughs> oh that would have been great oh man i'm sorry um <laughs> that's that is kind of it, it's awesome that you were able to know that you went in with the awareness and then you were also like man i'm not gonna be this sound bite help you with this drama stuff because i know there's gonna be I'm going to see this and I don't want to, I'm not that kind of person and I don't want to be able to be manipulated to be, appear like that kind of person. You know, that was, that's awesome. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. I, I tend to go by the general life rule of like, don't be the asshole. If there's a situation where you think you might be the asshole, just don't do that. Stop. Her <laughs> Whatever up. it is that can make, if it can look that way, opt out yeah, as that's... much as possible. Maybe that'll be the neck tattoo. The tattoo I get on the back of my neck. <laughs> don't be the asshole. Don't be the asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I, I cut because I keep cutting you off about it just because I had asked the memorable experience aside from not wanting to hear your voice was there another thing that you went through that just stood out to you one of the things that I think really stood out to me that I learned with that was like how insanely much I have you know I actually just came through that experience with just this insane amount of time to reflect and think while I was out there and just so much gratitude because there are people who live with so few resources and very little thing amounts of things and like there's plenty there are plenty of people all over the world sleeping on the ground you know yeah. and who don't have a solid roof over their heads when it rains and who do have to like cook on a fire or on like a propane fuel stove that's like not very oh kerosene fuel stove that's right. like not very clean you know and on pots that probably shouldn't be in use anymore and like i've you know i've traveled quite a bit in asia and in india and stuff and I, i've seen people living in, in poverty that's like not dissimilar to the experience that i had and yet i was at least out there where I was in the woods and I had all of the resources of yeah. nature, you know, in front of me, whereas these people are living like that in cities where like what they have to go through is like what's in the trash, what other people have discarded, you know? And, and so it just really made me kind of reflect on how much I do have, how little people can actually live with and how little so many people really are living with. And the, I'm thinking, and you've said it a couple of times, like you're like 21 days. Now 20 days, you wake up and you yeah, say exactly. 18 days. All right. I got, I was in, um, army. So I was in national guard and like towards the last two weeks, you're like, all right, seven days in a wake up, six days in a wake up. And you have that goal, which allows you to fight through the people you're talking about, man. I can't imagine the mental fortitude without that. end. like, they're not waking up saying, okay, I'm just suffering like this for two more months. Yeah. Cause that's their entire life. They have right. no, you know, real foreseeable hope of getting out of that yeah. and it's like then they have a kid who maybe has like disabilities or something oh, yeah. and like how are they going to take care of their child when they can't even get clean water you yeah. know um and I, I mean I've seen some documentaries and stuff about it and it's always just really touching to me and like it's upsetting that that exists in the world where some people have so much and yet there are people out there who can, who can barely get by, you know? Yeah. And it's good. It's good to put that kind of gratitude out into the atmosphere, the universe, the whatever. It's good to have that energy about you because it does actually, I think, make the world a better place because you don't feel this need to take more than you need, which I, I, right, I, yeah. I hate when people get into that, like hoarding consumerish. 
I just got to, whatever, I got to replace my phone every year because a new phone came out. And you're like, do you understand the waste that's being produced? And it's kind of ungrateful and there's more use, better use for your time and resources. And I think when you just put that out into the ethos of the world, I think it gets picked up for some reason. I feel like it's a good vibe to shoot out there and to know. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. I'm glad that you see it that way too. <laughs> well, now that we're in agreement about it. All right. <laughs> Cassandra. God, I see. I, I lost the R. I've been talking too long because I can't roll the R. Cassandra. I really had to think about it. There do, you go. You got it. Do you, are you familiar with how my podcasts end? No, I'm not. I'm sorry. Good. Don't be sorry. Only three people okay. to date. And I believe you are the 81st, 82nd, maybe 83rd guest. So it's pretty common. Um, but there are three shout out Jeej, the Ahab, Eric, a pastor and Kristen, the only episode that's been published 29 shout out to those three who do I'm going to, and you've been giving me a bunch of them all day. So don't feel pressure. Take your time. You get to tell me a little narrative. Can I get your best first for last? We've saved the best first for last sponsored by abstinence. Waiting makes it worthwhile. There are a lot of firsts. I do a lot of weird things. I, I know. I'm excited for this one. To be <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Um, okay. I have a best first. So um, having lived in Hawaii, I picked up a fun hobby of spinning fire. No way. Um, yeah. So like, you know how the, like in the, the hula dancers and stuff. And I took hula as a class in college because, wow, that was a great option. Why not, um, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they spin fire, like the fire dancers and stuff. Well, there's this thing called poi that's uh, part of like Hawaiian dancing. And it's these like round balls on a string and you spin them in like, you know, patterns and stuff. And so I had some friends I was um, that were doing like hula hooping and things like that. I like, I have a hula hoop that lights up and makes designs and I dance with it because I'm a hippie like that. <laughs> um, one of my friends had fire poi out and I'd never tried anything with fire at all. Um, but they had them on the beach one night and I was out there doing my hula hoop and this guy had these fire poi. It's like a ball on a chain, the chain is like about as long as your arm. And you know, it's got a little thing on the end that you hold between your fingers. And then you light that ball, you dip it into um, like kerosene or lighter fluid, and then you light it on fire and it burns for like three minutes as you spin it, you know, and you'll put a song on and you kind of like dance to it with these. Okay. Um, so I'd never, never seen them like in person, never done it before, but he had them and I was like, oh shoot, that's cool. Like. <laughs> I want to spin fire. And uh, I had my friend Michelle with me and she was like, Cassie, this is a horrible idea. You are going to light yourself on fire, you know? And um, can I ask why I, I, she had so little confidence in your coordination? If you're able to hula hoop and stuff like that. Yeah. Jeez. Thanks, Michelle. No, um, <laughs> I think she just, she worries about me because she thinks that I have like a very small governor for like fear and danger. Oh. So, you know, sometimes she like will, would step in to be that for me. Yeah. Um, I, I can't understand why but, she would think that about you. I haven't heard anything know, right? that would make me feel like you don't do everything in an extremely safe way. Same, same, totally same. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, despite her warning, I was like, I'm fine. I've got this. So like I, he taught me some like different 
um, moves with it, you know, and there it's like going over your head and like around on your, the other sides of your body and stuff. And he's like, yeah, that looks great. You know, I tried it with the, the poi when they were not lit on fire, um, just like the on the strings, no fire. He's like, that looks great. You want to light them up? And I was like, yep, let's do it. So then, yeah, <laughs> my first time I ever encountered fire poi, I started spinning them and uh, I did not light myself on fire, which was great. Um, I have since, of course, received quite a few burns, mostly on my arms from it, because you can't drink and spin fire. <laughs> Not a thing. I was a, dude, I um, so wanted to be like, were you white girl trashed <laughs> when you went to be like, oh, yeah, I'll spin. <laughs> so the first time, no, the first time I was perfectly sober right? and actually did pretty well and like really enjoyed it. But I've since like, it's a really fun thing to break out at parties whenever everyone's kind of like sitting around and you're like, guess what? I'm too awkward to like have actual conversations with people. So I'm really good at entertaining. Here's I can little, spin fire. <laughs> here's, here's a little boost in energy for our late night lag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone else is like chilling out, having drinks on the beach. And I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to light some fire things up and spin them around. Enjoy. Oh, or like, that's also part of what I would do with my hula hoop. You know, I'm like, eh, I'm like a six out of 10 on socializing, but like, I can get this hula hoop over here and make shakes with it. <laughs> so yeah, that's, I guess that's my, uh, my best first for last was my, my first experience spinning fire and, and I still do it. I still have them. Um, and like anytime I'm at a beach or in a place where it's safe to have fire, even on our property in Spain, when it's not windy out there, I can light them up and I'll, you know, spin. It's like a nice creative outlet. Do you like, do you just order these balls again on Amazon or something? Do you make them? How, how... I ordered them. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they attach. Yeah, I ordered them from the same place that that guy did. Sorry. No, that, that's fine. Cause I'm just curious about it. And then like, how do you have any fear at all that this ball is just going to go flying off or you're completely secure in the chain that's attached to this thing? Cause I've never held one. No, they're, they're pretty sturdy. Um, so the chain goes all the way through the, uh, the like wicks is what it's called the part that actually lights on fire so it's like a big bolt that goes through that and then attaches to a chain so they're the, the chains are like pretty thick for something you spin around yeah, so right. they're they're fine they could probably hold my weight and still be okay um mostly what i worry about is getting them like tangled around me and some extremity or other oh. um i used to have like uh, fireproof gloves that would go all the way up my arms so i wouldn't burn myself but uh, they didn't make the trip to Europe with me, so I don't have those anymore. <laughs> and I, it's funny because I've now I'm like almost wanted to just Google to see the typical dances or the way that they get swung so that I can understand the movement and how close you would get to burning yourself. Because I would almost think of it just like as a jump rope, you're almost like whipping it side to side. But I'm feeling like oh, there's no, a lot like more to it. They're all around yourself, and like there are certain moves where they wrap around your arms and then unwrap. Um, oh my god! So gosh. like you just have to make sure it's fast enough that they don't stay on there long enough to burn oh. you. Um, but it's really like a neat. I don't know. Like it, it's it's a rush, but it's also you know rhythmic and it's right. it's nice. I enjoy it. <laughs> Do you remember the song that was playing the first time that you had your poi dance? Mm -hmm. Gosh, you know what? I don't. I think it was kind of like some like house music, you know, it was one of those like 
like more of a, a rhythmic yeah, yeah. type of music. It Get wasn't like a Hawaiian song. Um, it was just like a some sort of like bassy thing, right. like well, electric. <laughs> dude, yeah, no. As soon as you said "Spinning Fire," I'm like, I could just see people like tripping on ecstasy in some German club, like a rave with the glow sticks. <laughs> yeah. You know how they just start spinning like that? I'm like, I'm picturing that, but like white girl trashed on the Hawaiian beach. <laughs> not go. not like, that you were. But yeah, <laughs> if if I were more into drugs, I would have for sure gone to like Burning Man and done it or something. You're right. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's right along those like lines. Yeah. Damn, Cassandra, man, this was so awesome. I can't believe you're. It's funny you're. You just wrapped up a three hour podcast, and you're like, yeah, I'm just like a six as a conversationalist, but I'm really more of an entertainer. <laughs> it's a interesting Thanks. interesting dynamic that you have. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your compliment. Well, you oh. were an excellent interviewer and were able to like keep me talking for three hours. So I hope I didn't talk your ear off. No, much. man, I fucking loved it. I love, I, um, I, I love it. I love the perspectives. Oh, I didn't ask this. Can you name the other Hawaiian that has been on the podcast that was also in Naked and Afraid? Oh, no, I can't. I didn't oh realize gosh. that. I'm sorry. My research game is like really shit it's, right now. It's okay. We're like just getting back here and everything. So I was just, yeah, I'm sorry. I cannot, but please tell me who they are. Um, so Dan, I believe it was the fan challenge. I think he did 14 days in Ecuador. Or, you know, actually that might've oh, cool. been his Peace Corps time that was in Ecuador and he might've gone Costa Rica. But Dan is from Hawaii. He's a marine biologist. Um, he was on Naked and Afraid. He's been on. Then I had two other guests, Luke, who's been on three times on Naked and Afraid, and he did like a 21-day solo challenge. Now I saw him uh, be on your podcast. Yeah, he's okay. like a, a one of the greats of Naked Dude, and Afraid. Dude, he, he sure. should be Hall of Fame. And he actually does a holistic survival school. And I've been, whatever, following him on Instagram and looking at what he does. He's fu he, fucking nuts, man. Like nuts, nuts, nuts. Um, and then I had a girl, Lauren, from Toronto who actually would suffered a lion. She was attacked by a lion at 18 working at a um, rescue camp and decided to go on Naked and Afraid in order to conquer her fear of Africa. And I think she was like an hour away from where she was literally attacked and mauled by a lion um, when she went on Naked and Afraid. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, That's got to be a real trip. Holy cow. Dude, the way- You when, know, just like emotionally. The way she described it, um, what she went through, she almost was disattached to it. I took it that way. Not saying that she was, but I think that's just how she's very analytical or she was on the pod. And I think that's how she just has coped with it. It's like matter of fact, this is what's going second by second. I'm not being overwhelmed with like the fear of I'm getting mauled by a lion. Oh wait, here comes a second lion. They're trying to pull me through bars, right? Like, um, Wow. She, she was able to tell it. And then when she got back, she would kind of remind herself um, of things. It was interesting to hear about her coping techniques when she went back. Cause she was young at 18 to get mauled. And I think she was 22, 23 when she went back. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. What incredible mental strength to be able to yeah. do that too. Yeah. hundred percent. And um, it, it's mental strength. I feel like that um, should be your next tattoo. Wait, do you have tattoos? I've <laughs> talked a lot about tattoos. I I do. I have a small one that I got when I was 17. It's like a mandala on my ankle, but okay. uh, I don't have any like overly meaningful tattoos. Gotcha. Yeah. The mental strength gonna up thing. my tattoo game. Yeah. I mean, the forehead is really going to be the next place that people will go for. And I think you should set you that go. trend and just mental yeah, strength. That's where it's moving. You know, or like oh, maybe right just there. like the flexing emoji right 
in where like your unibrow would be, just put it right oh, there. Yeah. And this way when people comment go. about the eyebrows, you're like, you know what? I'm just going to take the eyebrows out of the equation. Everyone's going to focus on the little bicep flex emoji. That's what I need. Thank you for solving all my problems, Sean. Well, I can tell you for sure that this podcast is going to be like on all my future runs coming up. Like as I'm training for this race, this is going to be like, you know, something I get to really dig into. So hopefully next time we talk in the future, I'll have a lot more information and, you know, be a lot more familiar with the people you've spoken with. And I think that it'll be, you know, really interesting having spoken with you to get to actually like hear and go through it. Yeah, it's funny to just see how people are like following each other on Instagram or liking each other's comments or people who come on the pod now noticing other people and like almost developing relationships with them. It's been kind of neat. It's it's kind of turned into its own little tribal thing, which is cool because you're connecting people from everywhere. Like you're in Belarus. I've had people in Hawaii, Canada, Egypt, the Netherlands, um, the UK, the Philippines. Like it's really neat. Um weaving wow, this super global. Yeah, weaving this social um social dynamic and just getting to know how most people are honestly really cool people. <laughs> you know, like it's it's nice. It's reaffirming that the world is not shit that there are a lot of nice people out there who are doing awesome things. That's a great outlook. That is. Thanks. All right. Well, I tried to wrap it up like 4 minutes ago and then I didn't. I will definitely wrap it up this time. <laughs> Cassie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for letting us get to know you and um giving up so much of your time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Sean. It was a lovely time talking to you. You have a good one. Do the same, man. Appreciate the knowledge. Thanks. Bye. Thanks to Cassie. I won't even try to do the Cassandra. That's so fucking terrible. Um, Name again. Although I did just try. Anyway, thanks to Cassie for coming on the Getting to Know You pod, giving so much of her time, dropping so much of her knowledge, and for inspiring so many of her listeners to buy a little farmette in Spain. I mean, how easy does she make it fucking seem? It, I, I can't wrap my mind around it, but... Cassie, keep doing you, girl. We are all jealous. Thanks to AndrePsyche.com for sponsoring the Getting to Know You pod. Go right now to AndrePsyche.com for some trippy merchandise that's going to be worth checking out. If you have not already, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The word of the pod is locked up. That's an Akon reference, if any of you listeners don't get it. Locked up is the word of the pod, as in locked up, they won't let me out. I believe they tried to do a remix with some new rapper who's, I believe, is accused of almost like sexually assaulting or molesting young girls. So maybe it's not the best word. Don't mean it. Don't do not in any way mean it in that vein, but Akon back in the day and Cassie, if you listen to the beginning of her pod was locked up. So maybe that's too much of an explanation, but it is the word of the pod. Post that word on any of our social media or tag the getting to know you pod when you use it in yours to get a shout out on the very next pod. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the Getting to Know You pod on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. 
please go to our Patreon if you feel so moved and support the Getting to Know You pod for as little as $2 a month if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. How can they hear about it? Just message us, and we will let you know. Arrivederci!